0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And Whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Travis Lee. Travis Lee is one of the owners of OutRun Parkour in Fort Collins, Colorado. He's a veteran parkour athlete and also a martial artist and someone interested in general movement arts and the philosophy of movement arts. So he and I have a lot in common. A little bit more about Travis in a second, but first, I want to give you guys one more reminder that we are in the middle of selling our autumn retreat. So this is a four-day incredible experience of immersion in nature, of movement, of community, and of mindfulness practices. It's really the best expression of what we do, these retreats are and spots are very limited. As of this recording, we have only nine spots left. So there's gonna be less by the time that I upload this. So if you wanna join us, you really need to jump on that link in the description and get on a call with me and we'll make sure it's the right fit for you. So hopefully we'll see many of you there. And now we can go on to more about Travis. So Travis and I uh, met actually at one of my retreats and he'll give us a nice testimonial about um, about the retreats during the conversation. Um, but I really enjoyed hanging out with Travis at the retreat because he and I shared a lot of common ground. It doesn't really come up in the conversation, but both of us have a little bit of a background growing up in kind of a counterculture situation. Both of us would then get into the martial arts, other movement arts, parkour, and we just see things really similarly. We both took an interest in natural movement as well. And so I've been really happy to see Travis grow and be really successful in the industry And he just debuted his new um, movement facility, which they managed to build up and sustain during COVID over the last uh, year, which has been an incredible achievement really for them at a time when many people have been losing their gyms in the parkour community. So really impressed with what they're doing. They have a really strong ethic around their teaching and the intersection of thinking about martial arts, movement arts more generally, and parkour and then also the philosophy and the why of your practice is really something that I think Travis has traveled further down in his thinking than many people within the parkour community. And it really aligns a lot with what we do with Evolve Move Play. So it makes for a really interesting conversation. And Travis, super excited to uh, jump on the podcast with me and, and share his ideas. So you can tell that you know he's, he's really excited to be here and and have this conversation and just has a lot of wonderful enthusiasm and energy and this conversation goes in lots of fun directions, particularly the second half of the conversation I thought was super interesting as we dove into Travis's background in thinking about philosophy, his background in understanding Taoism and how that impacts how he thinks about training in parkour and what we're trying to achieve with parkour. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Travis Lee.
1: Travis. Hello, Welcome. Rafe.
0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast.
1: My right man, I feel, I feel like I, uh, I'm like, like I disappeared, like I time traveled and then showed back up to connect with you because it's just, it's been too long before we've had a serious interaction. It has you been know. a while. We had our little chat before this uh, and I was just like, it just reminded me, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just like, not, I just need to be, need to be more connected to you it is like the veins are too they're too similar there's too yeah. similar so I'm excited to be on today
0: Yeah, absolutely so you just opened your your parkour gym or reopened your parkour gym
1: like yeah soft so open this week yeah soft open this week so your um random request for uh to jump on the show is I don't think it it might not have had a better moment as far as the vein of like meaning and, and sort of our parkour community and our timing for me, it couldn't, it couldn't really have been better timed. I, I think it's going to be one of the best time podcasts in the sense that we literally just opened. It was Tuesday. We had our soft open for outruns new facility. Um, and in many ways this is, it feels like our first open because from, you know, in the vein of meaning and actual self-actualization, and sort of pro- overall progress uh this this is the one that feels like we always wanted to open and the other ones were um we've been around for now eight years you know we were og apex guys um and this one feels like it it's like you definitely have that feeling of oh we've made it right so all the good and the um complications that come with that this is a we've made it moment no nothing no kicking gratification down the down the road this this is it for us in so many ways um not like in that we're done but in that now we can, we're staged to you know to be sort of the best version of ourselves and and definitely on that like life meaning track it we're just there and it's it's so good for anyone listening to to hear that because we're sort of coming out of this place in the parkour community where we've lost some gyms over the last year or two right i've seen a lot of our sort of pillars um you know sort of be affected and we're you know although a small group and community are a glimmer of hope in the sense that this is a parkour this is a pure parkour gym we are park og parkour guys and by modern terms and we're here and we're we're ready to like show up for the game you know what i mean and that's a big deal in a time when we're sort of hit the reset button and yeah. globally right yeah on the community
0: so you you guys were you the third apex facility apex fort collins
1: yeah it was technically apex loveland and um the current business model well the yeah the so my partners um we are an amazing sort of, I think, representation of what a business partnership can be right when the chemistry is right. We're very lucky um, to have that happen. And we are all critical parts of the recipe. You know, uh, we started to together when I approached Apex back in like 20, I think it was 20, I want to say 2011, 2012. And then in 2013, we started training with those guys in 2012. And at that time they were um, subleasing from a gymnastics facility. So the the business had just sort of, they were in the beginning experimentations of the business. And Mm -hmm. then um, when we opened the first standalone location in Loveland, um, I became um, partners with them and we formed our, our LLC and started Apex Movement, Loveland's standalone, first standalone location. I believe that was the first one following um ryan and ryan's denver and ryan amos and just Ash's uh boulder uh, location so yeah we would have been the third um i think technically the third apex followed closely by norcal now squadron right
0: yeah yeah so you guys have been god it's it's amazing to me to think about that like eight years ago you guys were kind of young guns to um to me in the parkour community right
1: you were young guns overall um but now we're grown-ass men (laughs) (laughs) yeah no we were we were young guns you know jesse and justin my partners um to give a little background like they when i became partners with them they were in their very early 20s right and uh um i was just like in my late 20s turning turning 30 i had a ton of experience coming out of the fitness industry i was already a gym owner and they had a ton of experience as athletes because they were the earliest members of the apex pro team um, and Jesse and Justin were Ryan's first two students and they're, wow. you know, as adolescents. So they were, they were the originals, uh, original disciples, right. In, in many ways.
0: Yeah. So for anyone in the audience who's not familiar, Apex movement, uh, Ryan Ford's probably the first person who had a teaching program in, in America, maybe in North America, uh, or in the United States it was like either him or Dan up in, uh in toronto i think and then yeah yeah, dan Iaboni, and then then apex movement was like the third facility uh in north america so yeah that's what um, we're talking about and ryan's been on the podcast before so we can go back and check that out
1: yeah we're all still really close and um we would we would not exist without apex um so they are yeah they're definitely our roots like that story is not (laughs) You cannot unweave the story between Apex and Outrun. We are mm-hmm. very closely related, and um, yeah. So funny enough, that might after hearing you say that, that I know that um, Jesse and Justin were training with um, Ryan before there was a gym scenario. So if they were his first two students potentially, then they would have been the first two students of parkour, you know, taught <laughs> in the country, right? So yeah. there's an origin story for you. <laughs> Yeah, I think
0: it was out of a CrossFit gym. Or no, that was even before CrossFit, wasn't it?
1: It was before CrossFit, although I know that at one point Ryan and Amos had the license for CrossFit Boulder. And I probably would have hung on to that and sold it later. But <laughs> the, yeah, they uh uh yes, it was out of I think a CrossFit gym. Um, and that's why we still see plyo boxes and parkour gyms, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Um the And then we came together at just a super opportune time. I had been training for, you know, loosely training parkour uh, for about a year prior to that. I think I started training in like 20, late 2011, early 2012. Um, Originally became attracted to it through, uh, yeah, yeah, the natural movement parkour scene. Um, (laughs) Well,
0: you, you, you you can say the word, you can say the word.
1: Yeah, I okay, so uh as you would say mob not. Um so <laughs> move yeah. not. Um, move move not, right? Right, mob not like so um and actually I'm not even gonna credit that because I think that the real person who deserves credit is Rob Wolf, because I was so deep in the paleo um sphere that I was, you know, I just moved from the Midwest. I come from Iowa, I just that's relatable. You know, I've made the pilgrimage to Colorado, like so many park the the parkour of Mecca sort of center here there's there's other meccas but this one's definitely a big one coming out of the midwest i didn't come here for a parkour but i definitely came here to actualize a little better and feel felt like i connected and this was a land of opportunity for me i'm in fort collins colorado if people need a need to put a pin in it about an hour north of denver and i i came out and just fell in love with uh you know nature and the parkour um ideas ideation came a little bit later first i was interested in rob wolf's podcast and sort of the paleosphere you know i I definitely we had you know drank that primal kool-aid um when it came to paleo stuff i even went back to school when i came out here for physical anthropology um so i yeah i was in i was like (laughs) this is it i didn't realize you shared
0: that too i mean so for, for people who don't know like we'll skip ahead for a second so you and i did we meet at like the 2011 jam
1: um no I found we did uh no we would not have met then I found you because of um your you know I was I again I become interested in I listened to Rob Wolf's podcast I think he had Erwan on there I went to the uh I started digging into their programs and and then I just I just found content that you had put out about a uh, natural parkour and I think that maybe Ryan had said No, I found, I think I, I don't know. It blurs. I'd have to think about it hard, but it's, it's early on. Like it's your first videos that you're putting out in the trees. And I was just like, that seems like what I'm really looking for. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. the, I'm not going to talk a lot about MoveNap, but I have to say, I have to give them some sort of recognition because I don't know if I would have found parkour the same way as, um, as if I had, because I actually started training the, on the, from the more natural perspective and that landed me with um matt share who was a another a guy who was working for apex in boulder in the old old boulder location the first boulder location and he was teaching sort of a natural movement class at that time with vinny i think he and vinny were, were trying to spin up a natural class and then i came in and you know he was sort of working with me but it was pretty obvious early on that i had like a strong background so it kind of felt more like he's kind of like yeah you know let's just train let's train together a little more um and then amos who is you know um co-owner of 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 apex and and uh he he walked in on with his like you know little like star wars ponytail and uh (laughs) on his motorcycle bike all blacked out just like walked in he's like oh hey man you're pretty good you should do parkour and i'm just thinking like i was kind of embarrassed because i'm like i'm working with him he's my kind of client and and i was like oh okay like just uh anyway that was i think that was the first time that that I met those guys, but I had I, my, actually my first lessons came from um, Lauren Ball, actually, who probably doesn't even remember me um, and you. and I found him in like uh, teaching out of a, the gymnastics facility in Denver where I was trying to learn parkour and then he showed me some ninja stuff but I just it did I would, the ninja stuff didn't ever really vibe with me um so as much uh stuff of... as in
0: american ninja warrior stuff or yeah, the,
1: the american ninja warrior stuff didn't didn't i didn't connect as closely because although it was a cool and novel like my martial arts is my backgrounds in martial arts and philosophy and it's just a, I already kind of was like that sounds fun but it's like just the it just there wasn't the emotional connection that i have with parkour and natural movement that seemed like obvious, which I can talk a little bit more about. I think the audience will connect and understand what that difference is. And yeah. But I'm just going to call out right now. That's a show. The focus of the show revolves around apparatus that are created by TV producers. And if that stuff ever changes, the whole thing changes, right? So it's not that American Injury is not about you, um, although there's stories that are spun. It's about whatever the gimmicks are that they've created to make it interesting to watch. And while parkour athletes, similar to like how chase tags kind of going, like slay at it, it's not really like there, it's not just, it's just the, the focus isn't as much on you. And I'll, I will explain and elaborate as to where I find meaning in that a little bit later, I think, but I, that's, that's why I didn't sync up with that. It was definitely once I found the apex guys and got into um, parkour in that way, where it was just like, I'm, you know, I had this feeling of this is me, I'm home. You know, a number yeah, of people yeah. I would watch walk into an Apex gym early on and just look like they had like found themselves. Like they've like, they have just like walked, walked right into heaven, like a boys and men song or something. <laughs> <laughs> and they come right in and they're like, "What? Well, I have to be here. You know, yeah, yeah. that feeling that you get, you know, that was less available to us nearly 10 years ago.
0: Do you, you feel like that? Do people still have that sense now when they walk into the gym for the first time?
1: I think it's happening younger when, when they come in our jam and you see a kid's or an adult's eyes light up. Or even I had a 67 year old that I work with who's, who's a little fire breather. And he came in he was, and he was saying to me, Travis, where were you when I was 12? And I was like, I don't know. My dad had just been born. <laughs> 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 so I can't. But that's what he meant. Like he's not yeah. calling out to me directly. He's calling out to, how oh, have I not found, sad. how couldn't, why didn't I get to find this earlier? And now he's, you know, he's getting the opportunity to sort of discover himself in that way, even in his 60s. So that's great.
0: Yeah. Let's put a pin in the, the Ninja Warrior thing and come back to that, because I think it's an interesting, an interesting topic. But um,
1: pin so or yeah. bullet, it's up to you.
0: <laughs> so we, uh, so we <laughs> were back to um, going back to how we met. So then you came out for um, for Return of the Source. I think it was. Yes. Like the so, second year. Right. That yeah. Was like year two.
1: Yeah, Next. I came out for Return of Swords as soon as I could, as soon as I figured out what was up. I was out there because the, the Moonat stuff for me early on, and this I think uh, there's a lot of adults to listen to you. I don't know if many if you have a large youth audience, but I think a lot of them I, they continue to be c- continues to come up. Should I do Moonat? Should I get that cert? Blah, blah 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 all that stuff. And I'm not gonna like um, those guys had their place, and there's something to be discovered there. But I'm gonna give you the hack, and the hack is just do your stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be straight up honest because did the, the, you know, when I came to Colorado, I had the attitude and this is what got me into parkour, even though I was later, later on in my age, in many ways, as I said, I'd learned early on, like I've, I was already established as like a, a martial arts guy, a wushu guy, which we can talk yeah. a little bit about. I was already capable. I had found movement. It was meaningful to me. I knew what the spirit of things needed to taste like. Right. And when I when I came out here, I just had that mind of I'll I'll learn from whoever is a good teacher. And that's actually what's got me in one of the, some of the earlier CrossFit gyms here. I had that background too. And I just had that open mind of I'm just gonna learn with who's with, with whoever is good at what they do because I'm gonna get more out of it. And if when you do your stuff, the ability to access you is right there. Like I don't even know how I get a hold of Irwan if I if I needed to, right? Yeah. And and there are definitely amazing people who are working for him, but I mean it's just like oh undervalued, right? I think right now. MoveNet is, I wouldn't say overvalued, but I'm just saying the market price is about right for what they do and where they do it. Your stuff, underrated, undervalued. And that's because of their, your ability to have direct access to you. And you guys are still in this, holding this pattern where there's like, there's grit, authenticity. There's not a lot of guardrails. <laughs> like, you know, the ability to get in before stuff and if it ever is becomes more structured and standard, standardized in, in ways that might, um sort of create friction between um spirit and activity right it's what you want like you want to go to the woods and jump in waterfalls and climb on trees and live like an ewok like that <laughs> that's the goal like what else do you want right you want to live in as close as you can to like this fantasy movement nature world and i think that being in the pacific northwest one if you've never been there before it just takes you back in time This trees it's jurassic you know, I came from the Midwest where so there's a lot of foliage, but it's mostly leaves and rotten wood and stuff with a bunch of raccoon crap on it. Right. So there's that. But like you come out there and it's like you, you're in like Fern Golly, you know, meets. I don't know. Like, yeah, some I, I would have I should have a better reference for that. But that's what that's what it is. And um, there's so much dissidence or dissidents, but there's so much um, room between what you want to be doing and what you get to do right away in those programs versus yours—that um, I think it's really important people understand that that's what they signed up for. I will tell you the first MoveNet. It's a funny story because it's all so connected. The first MoveNet seminar I went to was in Colorado Springs, and I'm thinking, "This is it. We're going outside. We're gonna jump on some rocks, and this is—I'm gonna finally be released. I'm tired of being in my drywalled prison." Right? Yeah. You know, I did my time. I spent nine years in a call center we're, you know, we're working in the professional career back in Iowa. Right. Mm-hmm. And I came out here and I'm like, it's time for me to go outside. And I get down to this park in the Colorado Springs. This is hilarious. So I'm down in the park in Colorado Springs. I'm like, they took me to a park. Like, why am I at a park? Like there's softball courts and like playground sets. And we're just sort of working on crawling. And, and I'm like, I'm like trying to figure out what's happening with the two by four. Like we have two by fours there. I'm like, why is there lumber here? We're not building anything. And I'm like, they have me threading through these things. And they've got these tripod, like there's these names for things. And I'm just like, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'm just trusting it because when you're in a young, when you're in that student mindset, you should just be like that. Just unless it's going to hurt you, In my opinion, just shut up and do what the coach says. And you'll, you'll get through faster. Right. So we're doing that. And I'm sitting here just kind of like arms crossed, like listening to not, you know one of the teachers who's very good and athletic and capable she's awesome mm-hmm. um and uh and i'm looking over in the corner and i see some guy like hucking tricks like this guy must have been like 14 or something like that off this concrete wall into wood chips just mm-hmm. spinning like i didn't even know the spins i was like this yeah. guy keeps hucking stuff and just splatting on the ground i'm like man those kids over there are awesome we we're kind of distracted by them right we we're like <laughs> oh these kids are kind of awesome and they're getting tore up. So anyway, I, I do that three day seminar in a park with lumber, um, working on QM, which is fine because you know it got some fundamentals in. I understood it helped me teach people who are who need to come in at a lower baseline. Um, and then and then like later on, I realized that that was like that was Dante, right?
0: <laughs> I was wondering that. if it was Dante. Dante I totally I thought it was going to be Dante later,
1: and I see him like hucking dubs off this freaking cement, you know, pillar into just splatting onto concrete. So even then, like I was just like, that was before I'd made the connection, but I'd already made the connection. So it's just those early days are so closely twined. I don't know how the mag magnetism of the universe, you know, brought us all together, but. It is a history where it's just like, hey, see that kid over there? He's going to mean a lot to you in the future. You don't even know it yet. That's that kid that you're like, why is he bailing like that? <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, so for the for the audience who don't know, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Dante Grazioli, really amazing parkour athlete, uh, big part of the, the Colorado parkour scene.
1: So, yeah, I, art of motion athlete and killer yeah. um, guy for all around. So re- me, return me, to the source. Let's get to the meat, of the, okay. meat and potatoes. So- I see your stuff and I'm like, yeah, this is what I wanted. I did that. I did those other certs I had, I had out there and it, it just was, it was perfect for me, you know, training with you and following your stuff and then working with you. We I actually, that year I went out three times. I think I saw you three times mm-hmm. with, with, at, you know, volunteer park and then a couple of times. And then, cause we were up there with, with origins and then, also uh, had uh, um, gone out for a Return to the Source. There was this year where I was really focused on, on your work and it, and it created a foundation for me that helped me sort of weave in. I think a lot of people listening are like, I love to be outside. And I want. I remember when I was a kid and like you always hear I run around in streams and creeks and stuff like that. I was that kid too. I lived in by some natural areas. And I had just a dog and me running through the forest, you know, jumping on logs, whatever. It didn't have anything else to do for entire summers and whatnot. So this is like, there's so much to find a connection there. If you've never experienced that, it's awesome. It also gave me the opportunity to just have massive amounts of like volume in nature doing parkour. And the other thing is that I was around people who were of a similar um, mindset, you know, you might say tribe, but just like I was around capable and strong people, even though these are people who maybe didn't have backgrounds in parkour, like a lot of the people were just open-minded, capable and and they weren't judging what I was doing. You know, if I would go, if you go on a hike, like this REI lifestyle, right? You know, you get all geared up and then you're still, you're in nature, but you're still like on a trail, right? It's like your experience of nature is still tied to your Gore-Tex boots, right? So there's that, and this was like, take your shoes off. I mean, it's at your own risk, right? So that idea that we could explore space, maybe not feel like a freak. And listen, I'm somebody like in high school, no shoes got like made fun of for carrying a staff around because I thought I was like a, you know, a Taoist <laughs> priest walking around my high school. I would go to poetry class and sit on top of the shelving, the bookshelving, right? So mm-hmm. I, I was that guy. I'm more, a little more what was it, studious and reformed now, but back then that was who I was, right? So you were always getting called out for being a weirdo for that stuff. Everybody listening has had a moment like that, whether it's the standing desk to you know, sitting where you're not supposed to. I'm sure you can relate. And, yeah, and being with people of a like mindset it was like, ah. Oh. and I'm going to say one more thing before I let you let you breathe and talk. And that is that this was the tie between the martial arts world and the parkour world for me. This is where it felt like I hadn't stopped mm-hmm. um, training martial arts. And it made it connected to me in a deep way. And that is that when I first saw other people doing parkour, I would be like, Holy crap. Like, look what they can do. And lots of times when you go into martial arts schools, you don't get to see the guy, like the guy's Mm -hmm. gone, you know, or the gal's gone, the athlete, you know, it's hard to find people who can do things that do that make you believe and see the world differently. Like, Oh, I didn't know a human could do that. Or I've never been in the presence of that power. I remember coming around one of the first like pro Wushu athletes and then watching them do. And I know you're not big on forms in for all things, but I know you can respect the, the strength and power movement. And I remember he was on a gymnastic spring floor and he did his routine. He was a national champion, was in like Jet Li movies and whatnot. Yeah. Yi Shu Xiong was his name. And he opened up and just did one section of his form. And I'd never been like sort of scared out of, an, of the vicinity of someone before. right? Yeah. Like I could feel his strength and power and speed. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to step back because I don't want to catch that. <laughs> right. And And in parkour, I felt that again. I remember seeing it with, with a lot of the apex guys early on. And then I remember, um, we used to do these exchanges that Ryan would line up where you'd pull people like Daniel Labaka, OG, like, um, you know, patron saint of parkour or whatever (laughs) you might want to call him. Like he came in in jeans and a t-shirt with his, you know, his, his, his man bun, you know, um, and just hopped on these 10 foot bars did a giant and then like a nine foot lache just like sort of checking them just to check the place out from a different angle and yeah. i was like oh my gosh these these people aren't human there are masters out there that i can discover and that's what felt like martial arts to me it was like you know you don't know who's out there and what they can do and you could find them and either see it or train with them and experience it and the biggest thing about parkour is the environment is the variable, right? In many ways, the environment is the opponent. So if you go to some other place and you find a master, then he or she's going to be different and unique because their environment is different and unique. It's very Avatar, you know, Airbender slash, you know, Earthbender. There's just so much opportunity, and that's what makes parkour so exciting and other stuff not.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that's one of the the things I like about parkour is that skill is so obvious, Mm. right? You can't, you can't bullshit it, right? It's like, you can do the jump or you can't. And like with a lot of martial arts, like you, you can do something and it may look cool or it may, you know, it may be beautiful, but it may not have anything to do with fighting or you can, or you can make yourself look really good by training your students to fall down easily. Um, Yes.
1: And, uh, and i think that there you can this i say that you can you can delay gratification but you can't delay happiness so if you don't feel joy in what you're doing and the in the in the meaning in it i feel like that's what happens in martial arts schools it's it's, it's not working because they come in and it's promises promises until you get hit mm-hmm. in the face so that is the stuff that 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 happens but martial arts in general and its history has so much value that comes with it that i think sometimes parts that are important do get a little like disrespected because those who created it or saw its original value either failed to translate that couldn't translate that in a meaningful way they're gone they can't represent it so then you do get that like rough neck sort of like gritty like MMA kid who can take damage who's just like everything is BS and I don't see a reason for anything that has to do with the traditional line of, of of martial arts and its culture but I think that far more of the problem right now is probably um, just you know the traditional bullshito stuff, right? Like it's it's a real. I mean, I had to leave yeah, to mean, find it. You just, know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, we just saw like the ultimate example of bullshito, right? Like the Joshua Fabia case uh, with Diego Sanchez. Like
1: I'm not familiar. Tell me. Oh my.
0: Oh my God! You got to look into this. It's it's crazy because it's really interesting. Also for from like for us who are movement people who overlap with with the. The martial arts world yeah but Diego Sanchez was the winner of the first season of the ultimate fighter in the 170 pound okay yeah so you you know Diego Sanchez so like I think it was three years ago or something like he's on the tail end of his career you know he hasn't been consistently winning and he felt like he was getting neglected at uh I think Jackson Wink was his his gym right and um I think his marriage broke up there's all these problems in his life and so he, he ends up firing his whole team and starting to train with this guy, Joshua Fabia. And Fabia is, uh, he's, he's the owner of something called the School of Self-Awareness or School of Self. And he, hmm. he portrays himself as some kind of martial arts master. And then, and then he like changes Diego's whole style and he's really weird and narcissistic in interviews and it doesn't work. Diego's still sort of able to defend himself, but he lands like six significant strikes in one of his, um, one of his fights. It's just bizarre, right? Um, and so people start making fun of Fabia, Fabia's blah, 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 like now, um, but there's all this footage that's come out of Fabia, and it's like, what it looks like is Fabia probably, I think, my theory, and, you know, I haven't really put this out there, is I think he started in contemporary dance. And I think then he like got into the whole spiritual guru thing. And then he got into Sistema and he picked up all of the bullshito aspects of Sistema. And, but the, the thing that's amazing about this is you have a like a legit killer in, in Diego Sanchez, but this guy who is utterly full of shit
1: is. he just <laughs> ruins it.
0: Yeah. Well, he, he, he manages to convince this guy that he's actually like, that he can kill oh, people. With. He, he he said he was going to teach Diego something that like he could potentially kill someone in the octagon with, right? And really, there's footage of it. It's an RKO, right? It's it's a pro wrestling move, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, hilarious. it's hilarious. And so if you watch this footage, you'll see I'm like, there's a point I swear where um, where like he's showing Diego some kind of a roll through to to take down and he picks him up and he makes the shape that ba- that ballerina girls make when they're picked up in the air
1: like oh, literally in high crown
0: us. he's like in high crown with one hand yeah. l- low hand high crown like the <laughs> the pointed feet the whole freaking thing so um
1: yeah, yeah. then you take somebody like you know like uh like michael venom page or whatever who has a fin- aesthetic finesse Mm-hmm. And then they're some of the most enjoyable people to watch. So oh, yeah, having some aesthetics know.
0: is beautiful. Israel Adesanya starts as a dancer too, right?
1: Yeah. The there's something. Obviously, there's something there, but so this guy, so wow, Diego Sanchez got like, oh man, that's I gotta, so show you.
0: I gotta send you this stuff. It's hilarious. You, you, yeah,
1: send, but, send me it later, I'll check it out. And but, but it's but,
0: it's a valuable lens because why do we fall into bullshit? Right. And then the second the other aspect of this is. Like how how does movement and martial arts interact? Like how can they actually be be like like interact well? Um, oh man, I've I've lost it. I, I had a I had All a train. Right. I was going to go on there, but um,
1: you were, you were off at ballerina, and then
0: <laughs> the ballerina thing.
1: <laughs> so it did work. The, his style stunned the mind, and <laughs> penetrated the intelligence of the soul. And so now, now we're all done. We'll never, we'll never breathe again. The aesthetic (laughs) aspect
0: of it, the, the, the dance, the, the playfulness and the capacity of movement to contribute to, to the martial arts in a positive way. But you have to actually understand the martial arts. You can't be a movement teacher and be trying to teach martial artists and not understand the context in which their skill is actually going to be applied. Like, I, I, so I'm, I'm I'm training with an MMA gym up here and I'm working with their fighters and one of the fighters kind of figured out who I was and, and what I did and he's like oh my god well Connor's got Connor's got edo right I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Rafe right
1: <laughs> is, that, was, is that yeah I was
0: like the reality is that the the history of of movement teachers helping out martial artists isn't super great looking right now because like edo Edo's you know, we don't know what Ito did with Connor exactly. We don't know everything that happened behind it. But the one visible thing is you can see footage of Ito training Connor in major del compasso, right? Spinning wheel kick with your hands on the ground, a couple right? Yeah. So Connor already knew how to do a spinning wheel, uh, wheel kick, right? But he goes in there and he spams spinning wheel kicks against Nick Diaz. That's a very or Nate Diaz. That's a very very energy costly movement, and then he ends up gassing out.
1: Mm. So save it for the hora.
0: <laughs> it's so that obviously that's Connor's fault and that's John Kavanaugh's fault for not like talking to them about like hey you know like not understanding what this tool is and and like whether you should be integrating it at that stage. But why is he why is he spanning spanning that that kick? Um, you know, in part it's because of his exposure to Edo, and you know, and I think Edo is largely appropriately. Uh, humble about his potential contribution to something like Connor's performance. Mm -hmm. But the way that I see it is the problem with that is you have to be attuned to... It it comes down to this problem of patterns versus versus solutions, right? And having been able to play the game. A spinning, uh, uh, that kick can be really, really powerful. But you have to know how to integrate it into your game and you have to have used it in a context that teaches you to perceptually be aware of when the opportunity actually is there to land it otherwise it's just a waste of energy and a lot of this pattern playful like let's let's just make nice looking movements um what steve morris calls aesthetic gymnastics
1: right Mm -hmm. that's to imply that gymnastics is not aesthetic which i kind of i I tend to agree i guess (laughs) It needs uh, the word aesthetic added to it just to still look good. As now, is what you're saying? Uh, no, I mean
0: the idea is that, that it's a, it's a form of gymnastics, right? It's a gymnastics-like thing that's focused fully on uh, aesthetics,
1: primarily on aesthetics. Okay, yeah.
0: uh huh. It's aesthetic gymnastics stuff. Um, it's not to say that it can't contribute to making an effective movement problem solver, but it doesn't contribute unless you actually do. You actually connect it. You actually build a bridge. Uh, between it so anyways that's that's kind of a tangent I, I got lost on what i was trying to say there no but um good if you wanted to say No,
1: something. i see i see what you're saying i will piggyback on that and say that you have to look at the context and i think a ton of this is you know who are the people um doing doing it i want to talk a little bit about like this is what i think matters like i don't know if it's the secret of life but for me but it's definitely the stuff that matters and that for me is um and you may have uh, encountered similar um framings within your work but there's just like what it's like to be you there's what it's like to be around you and then there's what it's like to be around the work that you create and actually you know the stuff that lives on your your legacy and whatnot and those are the three things that i focus on so if you walk into a martial arts school for you now from a utilitarian point of view i think they flip i think that maybe what matters the most is what you've done and then what it was like to be around you. And then what it was like to be you, but from, from, from the first person's perspective, it should go in my opinion, that way. Um, What is like a
0: logical perspective? One could say.
1: Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. And uh, and that is if you go into a gym and it's not enjoyable to be there, there may be people who are not experienced, will not likely experience harm in the six to one, six months to one year that they spend doing, um a type of martial arts that doesn't get them hurt but they got to hang out and they had to focus and they got to sweat a little bit like there's still value in zumba right it, it's like so yay okay but if you go into those places and if the experience is poor and you're not happy and it's not it doesn't feel like it's right for you that's your first that's your first alarm the second one is like what it's like what it's like to be around you when you're in there right like how are you treating people? How are you getting treated? Like, what does that sort of like multi-person dynamic look like? And are you contributing to that culture? Are you the product of that culture? Are, are you are you patronizing that culture? Like these alarms should have gone off a long time earlier in most people's martial arts experience when they go in, where they should have their little Bolshevik alarm should have gone off and they should have stopped. Um swallowing the promises of teachers who can't show or aren't already doing or it isn't already a part of what's happening in that moment. This is why return to the source is proven to be valuable because you only have a few days. (laughs) So if you didn't get it in those days, what I'm saying is why are there people out there who are waiting to get something from a group of people or a teacher or an experience of being present in, in a facility for years before they're like, I'm just not gonna take it anymore. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I want. I'm not getting the results I'm looking for. It doesn't feel good to be here. I'm seeing abuse, lies, you know, this stuff, you know, more just sort of prompt. Like what happens is, you know, you talk a lot about the rules of the game and understanding the rules of the game. But when you go in these McDojos adjacent to a Home Depot and a Chick-fil-A, you get in there and like, they have, that's your world. You have to understand, be ready for that. That's your world. You're making up the rules. It's a real life, you know, RPG. You might as well be playing Dungeons and Dragons in many ways because what's happening in there is where it's going to work. And you go to Home Depot, you're going to get your ass kicked, right? (laughs) Like that's, (laughs) that's, don't take that in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. LARPing. Um, So much of, so much of martial arts is just LARPing. But
1: bro, like some LARP, like if you're not doing anything, maybe, and that's what you've got, you know, and. and That's
0: the thing though. There's nothing wrong with LARPing. Except when Larping LARPing, tells you,
1: admit it's Larping,
0: right? There's nothing. It's like
1: if people don't know Larping, they have to know that's live action role play. It's like if you've ever driven by a park and you see a bunch of guys who look, you know, or or gals dressed up in fantasy equipment, like you know. And there's varying degrees. Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. It's that meme. And yes, if and I'm gonna tell you, if you you know if you Larp in the Bay Area and then you Larp in Russia. It's going to be different. Like th- I'm not trying to like downplay LARPing because I think you can die doing it in Russia. So yeah.
0: No, here's the thing. Like LARPing, la- the problem with LARPing martial arts is that they're pretending to be martial arts, right? Like there, there's, you know, for some reason, the analogy that pops into my hand is like, it's not wrong to have a one night stand, but it's wrong to have a one night stand when you tell someone that you're like interested in potentially marrying them
1: it's honesty you know what i mean like isn't that it what you're doing right and that's and that's just what i think it is you got to be honest with yourself and you got to look you know you got to frame up reality you got to look at things and be um and be a good observer and just you know that's yeah that's so that's the problem with some of the movement um coaches and whatnot is that movement the movement coach stuff is very valuable for someone who sort of is decomposing you know, decomp- decompartmentalizing, decompressioning, like they're detoxing from the fitness world, right? Yeah. Where it's like everything I do, I do for a point and a rep, right? Like that stuff, they're moving away from that into, you know, it's okay to just roll around on the ground and, you know, listen to Enya, fine. You know, you didn't waste your life, right? <laughs> <laughs> so like, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I,
0: I I'm, 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 more I like more accepting of this now like starting to really understand the value of the ground uh, movement on the ground and and I really do think it has a place and it's a really cool bridge in some ways to 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 a deeper exploration of movement but like one of my pet peeves is locomotion and then all you do is patterns on the ground like you didn't evolve to explore fancy patterns of moving around on flat dance floors like locomotion is running jumping climbing moving on all fours swimming it's like is your lizard crawl making you more competent at climbing a wall or swimming or running through rough terrain like those are those are fundamental expressions of what human beings evolved for Mm -hmm. and if you're if you're rolling on the ground and I think it can be helpful but there's this point at which it seems like it's it just becomes uh, recursive inside itself instead of bridging towards something that takes you further.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the risk you run into a little bit in the parkour community too. And when you have these more experienced gyms, like the ones who've been around for a while, I think that's one difference. That's hard. It's getting harder to be able to see the difference between someone who's teaching, you know, essentially what I call like, you know, um, schools that are basically movement buffets Right. Mm-hmm. Like if it's, if there's a program that we could teach, we're going to teach it, you know, yeah. and. American you know, Ninja Warrior, parkour, movement culture, CrossFit. Right. You know, badminton in a thong, whatever it is. Okay. Fight <laughs> thong, like, thong mitten. And, and so like, I, and, and I love that. You just have to be honest. Like if you're doing the movement buffet thing, you're probably more drop-in oriented. Like I love art school because we've, we were one of the first ones to cut open gyms and people were, in the community. And we were an apex that cut open gyms. I mean, I, heretics, right? <laughs> so like that for us was a big deal, but we only did that out of necessity because we had limited square footage and we needed to focus on a core group of students and build that culture. So I want to look back to the story of like how OutRun came to reality here, but definitely my martial arts background matters in that. And we can loop back and, and get on it too. But the, what sort of happened is We went into a period of isolation over the last i think seven or eight years or something like that where like yeah we were experimenting and we were just trying to get our business to survive we were always sort of like you said you remember you said oh you guys kind of were like young kids on the block at that time right Mm -hmm. at least in at least in age right and even though i think we're the same age but i might even be your senior by like a month or something february of 82
0: february 82 same same okay same same
1: there we go all right so what's your birthday we, travis the fifth fifth uh
0: 17th so you, you beat me by uh 12 days <laughs> there
1: you go but that's super close right which is why <laughs> yeah. yeah determinism may have something to do with that so the the uh you know we had that we had that we were always it felt like we were a couple years behind you know well i think i'm gonna be, i'm gonna give a gift of gold here for people who have a business model is that You know, I think one of the reasons so many parkour gyms struggled was that a lot of parkour was coming into reality, maybe because of in 20, you know, the early 2010s, real we had that recession, real estate, commercial real estate was cheap. Like you could get, you know, everybody gone out of business, you wanted to get us, you know, in a, in a big warehouse, no problem. They were struggling to get anybody to fill that space. And so we bought into the market with these mega gyms, like maybe 50% under market, 30% under market, something like that for what it really should have been at the time. You know and and then it swung the other direction and then the landlords were all like oh i can get la sportiva which is what happened to boulder in here for x number of the price i don't care what's going to happen to these guys i'm going to break the lease and i'm going to kick them out you know and so we were always just far enough behind on that to not be as affected by it because we were always two or three years behind on the ta- on the coattails of what the other Apex gyms were doing. So it always felt like we were trying to get a bigger space, but ah, oh, the market had like gotten bigger. And we just didn't have enough members, and blah 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 blah. And so, but this whole time, we're running probably uh, an experiment that's more focused on a business model versus um versus what what the guys who were a couple of years ahead of us were doing so that's what's happened like we've spent yeah. our time we wanted to build a gym like we have now but we spent our time in these really crummy smaller warehouses where we felt like we were delaying um uh, sort of gratification to do what we really wanted to do when i come out and train with you in return a source and then when i brought um the boys back my partners jesse and justin clark and we hung out with you and they'd spent time with you already right mm-hmm. but the, you know, when you saw us, you know, and our little, like, you know, little, little young, young breve lords trying to make a business and a life for ourselves, we knew that we had to do that. And I think that's another thing too, is we, I already had my, I was on my, you know, third or fourth reincarnation of gyms. Right. So I already knew what could happen to you in a gym. And I'm like, I'm not going to make these mistakes again. And so that's, I think one of the reasons why we're still alive, but the benefit is that we had all that experience, cooking up these experiments and running these things that really I think is what the future of parkour is going to look like for sustainable gyms that emerge and grow and that is be serious about what you do be good at it and and be concerned about what it's like to be around you and what it's like to be in the gym and the legacy that you leave when you're there and that's why I think I want to highlight again we do have ancillary elements that we teach like I spent a lot of time on, on breakdance and I, and I've spent time on tricking coming out of the martial arts world and whatnot. And there are other things, but when you come to our gym, it's parkour. Like that's what you get. There is no, there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. It's parkour. It's not parkour ninja. And that's fine. If you want to do that, I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that I think what's better for us is we build these sort of like martial arts style schools where it is tested against reality. Right. Um, and, and that that's, and that's where we go. Now, I mean, I've heard Ryan say the same thing. Like his, his vision is moving a lot towards the direction, Brian Ford, of, of wanting to be more like martial arts and um, in the sense that he wants to teach in that way and be, and be well known for being an educator. And he's already made that for himself. Mm-hmm. But what I'm interested in is creating personally, and, I'm, and I won't speak for my partners, but, but our vision um, globally is to make parkour approachable and come in and get that real flavor, but it's approachable still. Like we're very focused on approachability. And so that's what's coming in, in our new spot. Um, Let's talk about that
0: for a second approachability, mm -hmm. because like, you know, that's, we, we talked a little bit about MoveNet earlier and right. That's, that's kind of the, what it was optimized for in a lot of ways is like being like a lot of the same skills that you see in parkour, but, a two by four on the ground is less intimidating, right? If you watch if you watch video footage of Return to the Source, like people get excited about it, but they're like, wait, I have to climb through a waterfall. That's like, maybe I'll go through the the two by fours, level one, level two, level three. And then then maybe I can take on something like Return to the Source. I think of my stuff is kind of like artisanal, right? <laughs> uh,
1: Thank you. Thank you for also for using the word artisanal. I'm going to, I, we had a podcast episode where I used artisanal and my partners were busting me for it. <laughs> I'm but I mean, it, it
0: but it's the truth it's like I, i'm not I, I i'm just temperamentally not interested in optimizing for for general pop i guess right and I, I don't mean that in an elitist way but like i think people have to be have to have a certain mindset or have to have a certain um openness to to show up to rock up for the type of thing that i put on and i think you know, that story you told about being at a move, not seminar. And it was like, a lot of it was really remedial and, you know, way below the level that could be interesting or, 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 meaningful for you. But the flip side is the kid over there in the park doing double A twists and landing on his face six times. And like, most people are going to look at that and say, well, that's not what I can't do that. Right. I'm like, I'm not 16. If I tried, if I tried to be Dante Grossozzioli, I'm just going to be in a hospital. Right. So, so how do we, you know, how like you just said, outrun is approachable, but you want it to be also deeply authentic to what parkour is. Right. So how and are you situation. trying to bridge that gap?
1: I love that you're. I'm so excited about that question. I have chills. The, you know. Well, the answer, first of all, I'd like to say that I don't, I wouldn't want to frame that up as negative. I think that either by the point of, but just by sheer evolution and the, and the, and the selection process of business models uh, really moving out, has moved into a, an arena that need, we need to put a pin in and be willing to talk about and say, this is what happens by just evolution. When you build a program that, that, that was just look at it. It's built to sell certs. That's what it's built to sell. It's built to sell edific- edificate confidence in certifications. That's what it's built for. It's, it did, maybe didn't start that way, but that's what it is now. Uh, I, that would, way. <laughs> I would say that to anyone, even Iran, and be like, dude, loved your stuff. But this is for cert, you're selling certs. Two, you go the other direction and there's, so there's nothing wrong with that. If you need to spend thousands of dollars before, like, you're, you, before you're ready to get in a pond, then cool. You'll get there, don't worry. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> you're trying not to be mean but that sounds mean but okay go <laughs> ahead. <Go> ahead. <laughs> All
1: i'm saying is just go to your stuff man yeah, go to rave stuff it. just get in the water it's not that yeah. big of a deal he, he'll he will he will make it approach it is i'm not see, your stuff's not not approachable I, I think that that what we're trying to do is dissolve the feeling or the need for this formal edification before moving into what you really want to do yes it's yes. an issue of how you see yourself and that's the point of what I work on with my students. I spend more time with my students and my clients helping them find out who they are as a psychologist than I really spend, my, spend as a movement teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying to help you find yourself. I'm trying to move you in, in metaphorically from somebody who comes in with um, too, much, too much spandex, fitness gloves, you know, a headband, uh, 30 uh, smart devices into a kid who sits on you know a person who sits not a kid maybe but you sitting on the corner of a spot sipping you know a, a breve italian soda waiting <laughs> like so like inconspicuously to like huck something off of a, a wall or climb the side of a building like i want you that's what i want for you that's what my brand of our brand of like style is that's that's our thing is like we want you to be casually yourself and still be capable like that's what's interesting like you look at somebody and they don't look so like overly prepared for the situation, right? So, but, but what we're talking about is authenticity because that's authentically you. And I think that's what we need to focus on as leaders in the movement communities and as practitioners or people who are smart enough to actually be listening to your podcast is like, you got to figure out authenticity and, 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 and who is you, who is you? That's, hor- that's horrible grammar, but who are you, right? Like, and what that means is going and running these experiments. And I'm saying sometimes you spend too much money to figure that out. Look, MoveNet, Edo, those guys already got my money. Like yeah. <laughs> I spent, I paid, I paid for your sin like, like your sins, right? Like you can, <laughs> you can just just take my advice. I'm telling you, I will be your financial martyr. Like you don't need it. Just don't do it. Just, just go do, go do the stuff that are, that are go do with the people who you want to be like, or do what they're doing. Okay. Bet them a little bit. So how do we bridge that gap? Like, I, I think that one, you know, don't try and be everything, try to be who you are. And this is what I think is really important about our gym and our facility. And I see it in you, but it's, it's just different. And that's why I don't, no one should feel threatened by this stuff is like being yourself when you really find it is very hard to reproduce by anyone else. And it feels very good. And I think Jesse's, uh, my partner, Jesse said it the best when he had an Instagram post recently, you know, and he just said this spontaneously and it was words that I was looking for. And that was, he's like, welcome home. Now we, when we opened the gym, he's like his, his heading, heading was welcome home. And that's like, for us, I mean, it really felt that way because I'd been waiting to sort of not be myself, but my, for my work, that third part I was talking about, you know, what it's like to be you, what it's like to be around you and then what it's like to experience your work and the quality of that. It's like that place is that of actualization is where like, I feel like we are now. Or it's like people, if you come in that gym, you're gonna get, or you interact with OutRun, you're gonna get a, a little bit of what it's like to be in my head or my partner's head or something like that. What it's like to be us and, and, and experience that flavor. And it's gonna be different. We are like, basically, you know, cyberpunk meets broodless architecture meets a nineties kid that never grew up in our space. But if you go to your place, you know, again, it's, it's got your character in it. And that's what we need to strive for is to figure that out and then use our bullshito, um senses to, to deflect who we aren't, right? And that means you got to try. And it means time. When someone comes in, they give me all the promises in the world. This is me. I belong here. Blah, blah, blah. I want to do everything. I want to jump off that and flip off that and climb that and take on that challenge. I'm just like, hey just time will tell a little bit, you know, give it six months, give it a year, you know, time will tell, go out, do some things and, and, and learn a little bit. And then we'll know for sure. But over time it like that, like just, you become more and more refined and your self understanding grows. But that's where I think the difference is. And how do we do that with classes is that, you know, everybody starts at the same level. You're, you're, you're trying to be a student of more like a martial arts school. If you come in you do your classes, and then, but we're trying not to make it so constrained that it's like the you know the, they get a little uptight. The martial arts schools, and there's a lot of opportunities for dogma and promises that can't be filled. And there's so much structure. We try to be like just enough structure, and then lead by example. I find this with a lot of gymnastic schools where you go in, and there's kind of like the washed-up gymnastic coach who is very disinterested in what they do. But they're not all like that. Absolutely not. But I'm just saying this is a carrot. This is an archetype. And they come in, and they can't. They can't perform any of this stuff. There's no inspiration. It's, it's like, we want to be able to do what we teach or at least have a video of it or have people around like that that inspire, um, inspire and excite. I mean, I'm just preaching to the choir here, but yeah. but I think that's the, that's the difference. That's the key difference in, in what we're doing versus what I see being done in other places. And if you're like, well, that's what we do, then good. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you should be doing. So I think
0: there's a couple themes that are coming back for me, the, 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 the sense of what, what it's like to be you, what it's like to be around you, what it's like to be impacted by what you've done. Um, word. That, that starts to kind of get into this theme of meaning that we're talking about. And, you know, even John Verbeke's sort of four Ps, but all this to me, like sort of loops back to the point I was trying to make actually about Joshua Fabia, which is, I think in... The, like, I, I do think that the martial arts are really important for us as parkour or movement people to understand. I think what's happened with them and the ways that it's played out are, are really powerful. And I actually think that parkour in some ways is the answer to the problem of martial arts. Because what I see in the martial arts is that there's there's the jitsu of martial arts, which is the, the set of techniques and how you acquire the set of techniques. And then there's the do, which is, how those techniques change who you are, right? And so you said, w- the biggest problem is the bullshit, which is, which is techniques that don't work or a delivery system for acquiring the techniques that doesn't work, right? And often the, the schools that focus most on proclaiming their dough, right? That they're about teaching you the way how are the most bullshit, right? um and this is the thing about fabio right he's school of self right he's a he's a spiritual teacher right and so you get into all this airy fairy stuff and then it's very easy to manufacture bullshit and that's that's what i see and but the flip side is that if you stay within this long enough as you did what do you what are you saying you want to separate outrun from other parkour facilities it's a deep sense of why and an attention to character and how you're developing the people you're working with not just as you're not saying like outrun is going to be better than every other parkour gym because our athletes are going to jump six inches farther and they're going to run their 40s faster and they're going to beat people in speed courses and we're going to have the best world chase tag team right
1: right you that's save. not a. Uh, that's not us um that's um Right. We can jump far, but <laughs> that's not that's not our primary focus. Exactly what the pro the focus is um, when you you feel more comfortable in your skin. I would say that it's fun. You feel more comfortable in your skin. You know, you're not if you're chasing that extra, you know, uh, distance on your broad jump or the explosive speed or you want to compete, you know, it's because it's, it's what you want. Right. Like that would be my hope for our students yeah. is that is that if you do get that to that level, and that the, the rest of the journey is more experiential, you know, it's more like if you're going through our bands, if you're going doing our challenges, there should be a standard where you're able to, 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 to keep it feeling approachable. Um, and if you feel squirrely, and you want to do the harder stuff, you should still be recognized for that. Like we had a lot of conflict earlier on with when we build features, and we do programs, do how, how hard do we nerf it, so that anyone can do it. But I think that you can do both, and I think that's where the that, I think that's where the real skill in the in in coaching and programming is is find a way to do both. Don't don't get rid of either.
0: That's the separator for me. So often, in coaches is how do I take this space and say, you know, uh, the last time I taught in uh, in Colorado, I had uh, a a paleo organizer woman who'd never done any parkour and I had Dylan Baker and for those of you who don't know who Oof. Dylan Baker is in the audience um I'll put a video up but Dylan's probably the most physically talented athlete in the history of the North American parkour scene
1: who also <laughs> mike dropped into South America or something I don't even know where he is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't know what's up with Dylan right now but but here's the point I went to that seminar, I went to that space and I scouted a bunch of jumps specifically for him and challenges oh <laughs> for him, right? I was like, I'm gonna imagine that I'm Dylan and here's the lesson that I as Rafe want to teach Dylan. Here's the tool that's specifically gonna be actually challenging and interesting for him at this seminar. And it's gonna be happening in the same space as this woman who's never done parkour before. And and when I when I see young coaches so often, they they just nerf it to the level of the least competent student, and then the, the more competent students are just kind of left on their own, right? And they're they're not they're not given they're they're not the the challenge is inappropriate. And then you have the high performance type coaches who will just spend their attention on the uh, on on the higher level students and let the other uh, students sink or swim. Uh, in parkour, I see much more of the opposite. I've seen way more coaches who get really focused on helping the least competent and then don't often they're not themselves competent enough to help the more the more advanced i think that's one of the reasons why i i've noticed and we can talk about this but i've noticed that you said you, you've gotten rid of open gyms i've noticed that in a lot of gyms the best athletes to come out of that gym only train in the
1: open gyms and never go to this classes. is correct we have made that observation we've also made the observation that you cannot pay utility bills with open gym money <laughs> so, literally, couldn't even yeah. pay that bill alone. Yeah. Not to mention rent, staff, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And um, again, I just had this perspective of I I don't like everything about the martial arts schools. We'll talk about that. But I do. There are some things I do like, and that sort of like has a lot to do with being honest about what you're doing and the pride of your work. And and just and not everybody has to treat it that way. You know, your house is your house. Like if you want to have like a tricker house, fine. With a spring floor for a living room. But I personally like having a dinner table with a family around it. Place for guests to sit in a, in a guest bedroom, and then to have that, I have to have a certain type of, you know, um, model that supports that that lifestyle. Um, uh, for me and and my partners and my staff, so um, I think uh, you know, we do have we do have we we are coming up with, and we do have open what would traditionally be open gym, but it's for essentially will be the equivalent of like a black belt club in in the gym. And I just never could get this idea. Like my first martial arts schools were like Shotokan when I was like seven. And I remember I got in trouble because I came in and you're supposed to like kneel on the wooden floor, bow towards the direction of the the master, and then then enter onto the wooden floor with shoes off. And I had like, I came in with like my Reebok pumps and like a pink fanny pack with like bubblegum and change in it. And like, just, just like, just ran in, you know, just like jingling over the place, start doing stuff. And the master like stopped class. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm sure he was just like, cutely messing with me, but he yelled at me and told me how to take my fanny pack off. And I just refused. And so that was basically the end of my experience at that martial arts school. Cause I wanted my pink fanny pack. Now, luckily for me, I own the building and pink fanny packs are back. So <laughs> <laughs> my time to come pack club. right? Exactly. And, and so um, I still want some of that though. Like, I still don't like that. I had a lot of students who were just like, they came and they were paying a lot of membership money and they were learning a particular way. And, and this is a fault of parkour gyms first of, of a particular model. I think that just look at the best athletes and say, that's who we're in this for. And everybody else is just paying the bills. like this attitude of don't worry, the, 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 the these people pay the bills, but what we're really focused on are these egos. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, i nope, I'm not saying. That there's anyone in particular if there's a risk there i'm not calling anyone out because we've been there and felt parts partially that way or like we just wanted to train on it ourselves but that's the thing so that's what that's what i would say is one of the things that needs to stay with with what you're talking about i want to hop back real quick to what you said about um the the jitsu and the definitely. dough yeah. because i'm definitely a dough boy so <laughs> as a dough boy i'm all about the dough in so many ways you don't even know I started out, like, so most people think that my, my entrance into martial arts was, and I want to preface this with it, I'm not the only um, recipe or ingredient in the recipe that is outrun, right? Like, I have two other partners. They have very strong personalities and wonderful journeys of their own, Jesse and Justin Clark. But I mean, we're all key ingredients, right? Like if any one of us is gone, it's missing. So I don't, people shouldn't get the point that that it's just meme with these opinions. If you go, it's going to taste good. It's a good recipe. It's not like you have to pick. But we, you know, I started out, you know, interested early on. I was a Ninja Turtles kid, like loved Ninja Turtles. Um, you know, I was kind of dabbled in martial arts like everybody. But really what got me in was when I was, I went through about of like, just trying to find yourself when you're like a, like a teen, like, elementary age right and my family had was upper middle class we were my dad was a video and film producer got MS got sick money kind of went south now we're kind of fending for ourselves a little more you know I'm going through periods of like you know this not necessarily homelessness but like this location right like we're just we're having trouble and I'm and I'm coming into middle school trying to figure out puberty at this time and so I I actually when mo- many people will move to church or something like that for meaning but because I was um, had, was exposed to early on, my mom gave me uh, books on Eastern thought and philosophy instead of the Bible, like some people got, right? So my mom was like, here's the Tao Te Ching. Um, actually originally gave me a book called The Wandering Taoist. Ironically, it was sent to me because it was a cool story by a woman and given to me as a, when I was one years old. So I didn't get to read it until I was like 13 or 14 or something like that. And I just fell in love with Taoism. And um, the philosophical side, uh of Taoism specifically from an author um named Deng Ming Dao who um I'm lucky enough to be in contact with now and this shaped my life like this was the thing like it was the right time right place right message and Taoism chimed for me so from there I started studying Chinese Chinese language which I think you know and so I started studying Chinese language and then from there I found martial arts and because there wasn't a great just it just comes with the culture right there isn't it isn't really super separate
0: like a Tolkien martial artist
1: yes exactly so I, I yes right so in that way I found um Taoism and I wanted to do translations for the Tao Te Ching or read it and understand it and quickly realized that like that Chinese is very very difficult to understand and you had to know the culture so I've prepped myself through high school you know tried to raise money save money and then studied martial arts became very interested in martial arts started in traditional stuff even though it was American traditional stuff my teacher, my first mentor, Eddie Sang, was uh, was, a, was a Chinese guy who'd studied martial arts and he was very literate. So I learned the language alongside of it. And then when I was uh, 17 or 18, I graduated high school. I'd been working full time, studying Chinese, helped support my family. But I was like, no, this is time for me. I bought a one way ticket to China and just left in the year 2000. And I ran off to do my you know, that journey was very uncommon. Now there's a lot of millennials and Gen Z kids who do stuff like that, run off to India, China, whatever, South America to find themselves. That was rare and scary as my first flight out of Iowa, the Midwest. Right. And so I fly to China and that's where I really began my journey of like finding myself in, in that culture. And and that's why I'm so tied to a lot of the traditional stuff that gets pulled over because a lot of the meaning that I got came from Eastern philosophy, came from Taoism, came from the thinking that came to like a lot of these really practical and smart martial arts teachers. And these guys, like my masters, like my teachers, they were not both guys. Like they would make fun of the same stuff. They were just like, Nope, this is a lot of people tell you this, that's a lie. They're trying to cheat you. Like, this is what it was like. This was, was real. This is what my master did. This is how he had to fight, you know, and here's what I think you need and here's the foundation. And, 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 and that's, and that's what came through. Like one of the things I think is really important is just physical, the physicality foundation. Right like these guys didn't have like, you know, all of the athletic training equipment that was available to us. So they were, a lot of their stuff is built to train large groups of people at once. Right. Like every guy, I've got a hundred guys, thousand guys. you all got to stand a horse stance. Cause that's what I'm working with. Right. I don't have yep. weights. <laughs> so, but some of that stuff is good because there is value to grit based fitness. That's why people do tough mutters and crap like that. Right. And it's just, uh, sorry, tough mutters aren't crap. I'm just saying stuff. I'm sure. using that word interchangeably. Right. Um, but that's what they need some if you've never got a callus on your hands or your feet or stayed in a horse stance and discovered oh despite the fact that this really hurt day after day after day after day it's a pretty low impact way to train you know in parkour if you're like i've got to do it i've got to find a way you got a gap you know you do a flip and you you bust yourself like the risk is very high but for martial arts schools like i can put you in a horse stance i can teach you stance work and it permanently changes your body like the frame and the aesthetic of the way that um um someone who does a particular style is noticeable we can see it even in parkour styles you can see their their body and the shape and you're like oh i know that guy trains here oh i know that guy knows that style like they they smell like it like people can come to my gym and now they'll they'll move around i'll say hey do this this that i'm like oh that's contemporary dance oh you got a capoeira background oh you're karate oh you're taekwondo i know where you've been and what you did um and who your daddy is and what and what what he did what he did so that that is something we'll see more in parkour and that's what I want to see I don't want to see these gyms become amusement parks and there's no spirit and flavor and if we come in and I imagine the day where it's just like oh I can tell what's who your teacher was by how you train parkour that to me means a lot and I hope that someday people look at people coming out of our schools and they're like oh you all oh, that's an outrun guy oh you work with Trav I can tell uh, you did that thing I, I see that you took that from him that stuff's the fun stuff that needs to carry over because that's what we would talk about in martial arts a lot when we would see even the forms right that's the physical structure i can't get you to look like dante in a flip if you don't have similar um a similar frame in what you do right like we have to you know i'm, not, I'm just pulling dante up as a reference because yeah. that's the free runner that we were talking about but i can't you know if we look at someone if people who are really like you know, gorgeous um, movers. You you aren't gonna ever look like them, even if you memorize the movements. That was something about forms, the value of forms. I used to chase forms, thinking that once I learned to memorize that form, I would look like the martial artist. Mm-hmm. But that's not been the case. The case has been when I go out and I work on my physicality and I work on my 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 shapes and my extension and my ability to control things. I learned from dance and timing of uh, like hip hop and and breaking and things that I learned from traditional strength training. And then I go back and I look at like how I want to stand and move we instinctively we can see it I don't have to tell you I don't have to teach you how to appreciate the shape of a true athlete or someone who's strong you know like you you know what is scary and what is sexy I don't have to teach that to you
0: mm-hmm.
1: right and so those are the only things that I want to present as <laughs> no not not at the same time that sounds terrible right but I'm just saying like I want to look okay. strong or I want to look yeah. attractive I'm yeah. not saying you know what i mean i don't want to look scary and threatening right so does that does that make sense like so some of that stuff needs to carry over and when you take a guy like an mma guy who who can win and can take hits but just something about him doesn't look like appealing or attract like that's the it's a sustainability element that i think really carries through look you know how old we are we have martial arts backgrounds we're still doing it if you huck like a tramp kid into your teens you're going to need new knees by 16. And you're not going to be able to train. And one of the lowest impact ways to train like that, I still think martial arts forms are good, or at least those those archetypes and going through like stance work that needs to be there from like the, you're talking about the, soft, the softer side of things. Um, I think that that needs to be there in many ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you can look at those things as uh, as potentially useful body integrity pieces. Like we divide our our um, our, our kind of thinking about movement into there are three really primary forms of movement and then there's the body integrity piece which is like an ancillary piece but how do you move in the environment how do you move objects around and how do you move with other things and you can divide that between like like cooperative interaction and combative or competitive interaction but the body integrity piece is basically you know in a you you could imagine that like in an optimal sort of natural movement lifestyle and also where you might expect to die when you're 50 that, that you get all the movement nutrition you need from from gathering and hunting and making things etc um but we do live sedentary lifestyles we do live a lot in lifestyles that are that are un, unnatural for us even in like you know you can imagine like mm-hmm. the, the evolution of chinese gong fu or or uh, or or yoga or qigong like those people are all physically active, but they're physically active in very repetitive forms that have to do with agrarian society that the human body isn't that well adapted to. And it's like something that helps you correct for that becomes very, very valuable. Um, so I do think there's some Lindy behind yoga, asanas and Qigong. Um, what's problematic for me is when the focus on aesthetic becomes too strong and mm-hmm. and the the foundation is lost and the, the idea that that these things actually teach you to fight at all. Like, um, and I don't think I don't think I think it's very clear that you do not have to ever do a form to be a fighter. No. And so 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 what is it? It's 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 something that you can add to your training as a way to cultivate some physical capacities. And the physical capacity side of it is interesting. I mean, um, you know, all the Taoist guys talk about like these these changes that come through these long form exercises now there is some interesting scientific information about like long-term isometrics are turning out to be like really valuable um i'm saying yeah your tendons your tendons adapt um to to isometrics in a really p- specific way that's very beneficial um so i for the audience if you guys haven't heard me talk about this Um, comes out of the research of a guy named Keith Barr um, and various other people, but he's who I I heard about it through. But but basically when you do an isometric, um, imagine a tendon is kind of like water, like molecules in water. When you, when you hit it hard, it becomes one thing, right? So when you spring off of a tendon, that entire tendon gets loaded and explodes, right? Um, And so the, so it, it operates as one thing. So there, if there's a disordered portion of the tendon, then that Ten, that aspect of the tendon doesn't get separated out and can't get really improved very easily however if you isometrically load that tendon then the tendon creeps the tissues start to move like a rubber band that's held at tension and that allows the individual aspects of the tendon to essentially um, get stimulus so the force will sort of go away from the area that needs it when you are moving fast, but you'll feed that area when you're moving very slow or isometrically. Mm. Um, and so they've found for tendon healing protocols, something like a two minute squat or two minute lunge is really optimal, which looks a lot like some of these old protocols, but 30 seconds gives you 80% of the creep of a tendon, hundred percent at two minutes. So like a 20 minute um, horse stance I'm not sure that's necessary at least based no, on I've science
1: o- i've only done that once and then to me that ball is more in the category of grit based fitness like the reason you would do it just is just to see if you could you know yeah. i mean I, it's like yeah. it's just there but all my teachers were would spend more time in the 30 seconds to two minute um blocks and then transitioning in between stances that was that was fairly common
0: but I want to talk about the tradition thing for a second here because I have a couple of thoughts on that. One, I think it's really important, and this is huge in my work, right? Is the acknowledgement that traditional martial arts failed the test of reality, right? When 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 it was karate and uh, taekwondo and um, you know uh, Japanese jujitsu versus Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing and muay thai and wrestling, the later crushed, right? Because they their training was based on exposure to some kind of reality. There's a real skin in the game thing there. Um and 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 so that's where the jitsu has gone, right? But you talked about that meathead like guy, the mm-hmm. MMA guy, right? And how there's something maybe missing from that perspective as well. And I agree. I think that 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 we need to to recognize some of the value of the tradition. But a lot of the thing about the traditions is they're not even traditional. Right? A lot of the stuff that's, that is that that is considered traditional martial arts is really Western industrialized pedagogy that was adopted during the modernization period in East Asia and then has been sort of propagated as through dojos throughout the world. But that's not how the, the Okinawans or the Chinese were training 300 years ago or 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, so some of the stuff we consider tradition is just nonsense, right? Mm. Um, but he, here's where I wanted to touch on something that's interesting to me, which is how do we build communities? So I just read this book, The Righteous Mind. I just finished it. I think everyone needs to read this book. It's such a profound book. But one of the things he was talking about is that human beings are, are, are groupish, right? We, he talks about we're, we're not, uh, 90% chimp and 10% bee. Right? We have this capacity to act pro-socially and to subsume our ego into a broader totality. Well, how do we do that? Well, part of it is we we, we engage in things that help us care better for each other. But part of it is we also have to actually erect kind of barriers to, to entry. We have to make, you have to, one of the things that really gets people to um, feel deeply connected to each other is some kind of sacrifice that brings you into it. And I think this is one of the things that's happening within parkour that, uh, is missed is it's such a, it's such a, um, individualistic sport that it has problems actually catalyzing real community. And it's interesting because the way that that was done in the early days was through this grit based training, as you call it, like a mile of quadrupedal movement. And that, that was a big part of what the Yamakasi were doing. Right. And we start together, we finish together. And as it's spread and it's become more and more about just making the prettiest video on YouTube or mm-hmm. Instagram. Now it's not even YouTube. It's Instagram. <laughs> right? Or TikTok, And you look really sexy moving for three uh, for 15 seconds on Instagram or TikTok. Right. Some of that has been lost. And I feel like as a community parkour is not much of a community. Not, not compared to what it used to be 10 years ago. And so it's not it's not catalyzing into like a better better way to build pro-social, more virtuous human beings in a community form. And so part of what I'm hearing from you, and maybe I'm just misinterpreting you, is that, is that you see within the martial arts something that we can adopt to bring in and say, here are the rituals. Rituals are really bonding for people. Here are the rituals that we're gonna to decide to torture. It's like, so that bowing to the master thing, like there's, there's a real power to that. And also a real danger, the power to it is some kind of ritual catalyzes a common identity. The, the mm-hmm. danger to it is when that common identity is around the, an individual person, it's a cult.
1: Yeah. So here's what I would like um, to do with that, because I also feel like there's like some lost boy syndrome that goes the other direction with parkour too where it's just like about a bunch of adolescent boys who who can't pay rent so <laughs> yes there's like <laughs> there's that too right so there's the practical aspect of life has to be woven into that but i but maybe it's not you bow before you come in the gym and you you know salute the master maybe it's just you don't come into my spring floor with like dog shit on your shoes and maybe it's just You don't bow to me, but when you see me, you know, you dab or you shee. like, I don't care. (laughs) Right. Maybe it's something like that. And it does this like acknowledge that, yo, like that person has been there for before, like maybe that jump you're thinking about, they've been there before in their mind. And maybe this way of training, you kind of know that that person, you've seen it, like they've done it. What I really constantly struggle with is like the ability to constantly have to prove up to every generation that goes through a quickening in my orbit. Mm-hmm. right so my original training partners they all gone right my 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 people in my words in my community we all know it. you had the group you had the click you know for my my 14 to 16 is gone my 16 to 20 something's gone my 20 to 20 i maybe have like one or two friends who i've been training with that long that are still training still in the movement game whether yeah. they're doing martial arts or breakdance or or parkour and i just watch that attrition and then every new group that comes up at my age, it's like, hey, how do I inspire upon you that, that I've been there before and your journey is different, but the fact that I've done it before has some value and you can come to me for certain things about that, right? That's what I want to stick. And that's what the value of the real master has. And I heard someone I, uh, like my teachers that I still have a close relationship with. So the people that I still am with, like, they're still learning. They're still trying to do it. They're still trying to do something. They're still trying to figure something out. And, and that inspires me even though they're 60, right? Mm-hmm. And they still kick ass in their own way and there's something to be discovered. And you're like, yeah, you know, it's my time to do this. And then later on, it'll be that. And just understand that there are rituals that we could employ along the way. And it's so funny that you mentioned this stuff because my back end training with my students who I get close to, like is more participatory like that where we're doing the same thing, but it's stuff that a new person wouldn't sign up for and do. Like we ha- I have right now a program I'm working on that is basically 30 days of like stance work And the point of doing it is doing it together and then at the end there's a ridiculously long crawl that mimics what like Shaolin monks do because they do the same thing. We talk about the Yamakaze crawling right but Shaolin the Shaolin monks have been doing it up Songshan at the Shaolin temple as part of their ritual up and down for, you know, whatever 800 years something like that, Um, so. So that exists. Some of that can stay, but you don't need to do it every day. It's like, come on, we did it together. Let's see that that's the value. I think many, you know, growing the gym that we've grown and the, and the brand that we've, you know, manifested most recently, Outrun, um, and that project uh, that our efforts, like that in many ways played that role for our coaches and community. There was a lot of doubt. <laughs> you know, when we decided to rebrand um, as and not do and not be um, an Apex and be, and be Outrun, was just really disposed to represent our creative potential, not to break from anything that wasn't really working. But a lot of people were baked into that family and having, you know, you know, dad and mom separate in many ways for our staff was very hard. But building this gym as we have, it feels close. Everyone feels very close. The tension is, is gone. A lot of those people, oh, now I get it. But earlier on, it was, trust me, you got to trust me. And they're like, what? This is, why does it look like that? why is it, you know, there's all this like doubt and leadership has to step up and be the ones to do it and show what it means and that's missing from a lot of these other environments that's key that's different so the other thing i would say that needs to be carried over because i said i was a doughboy, boy and that was a pun on the fact that dough is Dao, which means way which is the which is daoism right yeah. so the japanese and koreans you will use dough in the pronunciation and the chinese the pronunciation is Dao. same word has a bunch of different meanings, deeply culturally embedded. It's in everything they do, worldviews and everything. You can't give it like one, a one sentence describer. But you often, I've heard your podcast before, I bring up uh, the doll and the fact that you like the adaptability of it and you like sort of the ambiguity of the philosophy and an it. You say that you're, I think I've heard you say before your favorite, your first, your your favorite chapter was, was it the first one? What did you say? Yeah, it's
0: the first stanza or the first verse, the uh, first, yeah, uh, st- I don't know.
1: The stanza, first, yeah.
0: yeah, stanza. So the first, you know, that's, that's the one that, that always hits home for me. Um you want to say
1: it? Why, why is, why, what is it? Why is it? Yeah. No, it the way on. that
0: can be spoken is not the eternal way. The nameless is the mother of all things. The name gives rise to the 10,000 things. There's a yep. couple more verses, but that's, those are the three that really uh, hit, hit me because the, the idea is that what, the way that I interpret that is that what we can understand is never is never a complete description of reality. So the thing that we are seeking is always beyond our ability to fully grasp or to kind of always be with, right? So there's always a a level of, of respect for mystery that we need. And the second thing is that everything comes out of unbeing, right? Everything comes out of everything is potential first, right? And so, um, in order for us to, to create something new it has to come from from the place of nowhere right mm-hmm. and then the last part is that once it becomes something new though it it only becomes it because we've named it and we've articulated it right so so we need to have this so i think of i've been thinking you know a lot about my sort of spiritual i guess uh religious um thinking has been a lot of my thinking recently but through this, there's this articulation of meaning. I've come to this idea that fundamentally the purpose of a movement practice or, or practice is the cultivation of virtue. And and I'm using a very specific meaning of virtue. I'm using it more in the traditional like Greek sense where it was just your capacity to achieve something, not so necessarily how good the thing you're achieving is. Right. Um, so, And then I, I have this five fundamental capacities, which is um, can you recognize a problem? Right. The first thing to solving a problem is actually being able to see the nature of it or to see that a problem is really there. So often people get their heads stuck in the sand, right? You get knocked out because you should have known the guy was angry and, and was in your uh, space and you and you decided that that's not the type of thing that happens in your life, right? Next is recognize that the nature of the problem, right? The guy's standing in front of you and you know, he's going to attack you with an overhand right, right? So what, what does that look like, right? And then you have to have the, uh, the emotional ability to, to deal with it, right? So as I'm standing there, am I going to panic because I can see this guy loading up that overhand right? Then do I have the physical strengths and qualities to apply any solution that I want? last to have the skill do i know how to slip that ja that overhand right and you know return whatever fire i want to return right so so problems always always go through this sequence we always have to have those right you can you can look at it in another way like the, the most fundamental problem that a parkour athlete has when i start first start training is where are the jumps yeah how do i I've recognize in the environment the potential the potentials that are there for me to express my capacity to move such that I can become a stronger person. Right. And then like, okay, well, I can see that this, this thing, this jump is calling to me. It's like, well, what would I need to do to get there? So, okay. So I figured out that it's, it's a four-step run up. I needed to start with my right foot, et cetera. Okay. I'm standing in front of it. You know, do I have the emotional strength to, to actually do it and not bulk? Right. Then are my legs actually strong enough? And if they're strong enough, am I accurate and consistent enough, and do I know how to do the type of jump that's needed in that situation? Right. Those are the, those are the things. So what I realized is that this description of um, of of capacity describes someone who's evil just as easily as it describes someone who is good. Right. Genghis Khan is great at this shit. Right. Adolf Hitler was good at it. Right. As much as we don't want to admire a man like that, like he was. He was incredibly effective for a long period of time at what he was trying to do. It's just what he was trying to do is horrible, right? So how do we separate that? Well, the only conception of the good that I have found that makes full sense to me is that it's rooted in love, right? So the love that, that, that wants to bring good into being, the Christian concept of agape, right? So that's, that's my highest principle, but then I would put almost outside of that, the idea that that's, I think that's a really articulated, beautiful vision. And I think that it's really important that someone who accepts that vision also say, I still don't know. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I I still don't understand it completely. All of these things are still beyond my capacity to fully understand. So I have this, my next set of axioms is respect the mystery right? Serve, love, seek truth and cultivate virtue. Mm, if you do beautiful. those things in life, then you're on the right, you know, you're, you're going to be approaching the right path.
1: Yeah. I think there's an element of this too. That's like, you know, you don't, there's not just one way <laughs> Dallas would say that, um, that you it's okay to, to have these, you know, multiple approaches to heuristics and sort of the journey of self-understanding. And that a lot of times, these will be paired with age, depending on whether what's in front of you and what problems you have to solve in the moment, a given philosophy may be what you need at that time. But what's really important is the information that you're getting and how it affects you and the masters that you're working with, the teachers that you have and the mentors you're around who are capable of conveying that to you in a way that that uh, that is best for you and what you need at that moment to really, you know, to do better and to suffer less. So the first, yeah, so back to... Uh, back to the Tao origin. So the first one is mm-hmm. Dao Ke Dao, Fei Chang Dao, Ming ke Ming, Fei Chang Ming. And that's the, that's the one you're talking about. Like the Tao or the way or the sort of origin or just sort of like the um, the Tao that we're trying to talk about um, is not the real Tao, right? Yeah. And so this is, you, you people say, oh, well, Zen, this is very similar to Zen, but Zen is basically Taoism with lay Buddhism like painted on top. Mm -hmm. Right. So that style of of thinking finds its roots in China and definitely was already accepted because this worldview, you know, the Chinese, whether a Chinese person admits to it or can identify it or understand it. These concepts are already baked into into the into their culture. And so this acceptance of that sort of potential is there, whereas we have a very um, linear You know, we like to say we don't in the West, but it's actually. Then why do people have so much time describing an alternative, or why we have to study philosophy to sort of get some of these concepts that might be considered more elementary in the East? Uh, We definitely have some kind of, you know, meaning gap that we're trying to fill, which is also why your work is very important, and your focus is on that, right? So I think that um, here's some other things that could be carried in that. That's baked into from Chinese traditional Chinese martial arts, and I've brought it into the way that I teach. I do tend to use repetition. I too do, do tend to, t- to borrow from Taoism and Taiji, which is Tai Chi um, to most people. When I teach, so when I'd like to talk a lot about circles, talk a lot about the motions that I was exposed to by good Taiji teachers, and more, and even more advanced styles that have to do with body mechanics that you would only be able to present in a form and could be identified by a master um without actually just fighting someone right maybe you'd see it but it'd be harder to show so if i show you the body mechanics of a northwestern style of chinese martial arts like uh tongbei or fanzi uh, or uh, pigua those styles they use more of a relaxed um motion so actually when you see like so funny when you see, Eidos you know, like what we see teaching, like the thing where the guy, um, they mar- like Connor marches out his arms Connor swing with the the side. arms, yeah. dude, that comes from Tongbei. It's a relaxation technique that helps you use the, relax the scapula and sort of break up the fashion in the back so that when you swing, you can, there's not extra tension when it's not needed, right? Creating that, that whip or that chain. So when we use our arms and we swing and we run in parkour, I look for a lot of those mechanics where you don't want tight scaps, right? You want that freedom of motion. And that would present to me in this unnecessarily complicated way of learning that, (laughs) like is what I'm saying. But still, that's where my background in it came from. So I'll look for it and I see it. And with Taiji, when we talk about the circular and not stopping, the non-stopping energy, the redirecting, I teach it a ton with impact. When I talk about like jumping to a precision, light landings, allowing the arms to like come in like behind, be loaded and then chamber and the body and sort of does a wave or a circle and the energy never really stops. It slows or it speeds up and then it moves from one plyo to the other. And when there's a lot of tension and blockage there, then I would say that's like, you know, someone in martial arts would be like, oh, you know, the chi won't work well there, but they're just using chi to like god to describe stuff that we don't completely understand right so at best you're getting that description at worst you're getting a lie right so it's dangerous it's why the teacher matters i think a lot but anyway so that's where that's some of where Taoism, has applied to my teaching like i don't everyone i don't i can show that as a concept as a physical concept in movements and use it and get in people's minds about you know when you do the when you when you're going to approach a wall and you're going to step on a wall and the wall run you don't want to laser into that wall and then take the impact in the achilles right you want to try to find a way to convert that momentum at an angle that's going to contribute to you going up well that's that is like a circle and this is it does move that way and some of the mechanics of taiji could could be abstracted and then taught to you so that you understand how to move your hips and your torso and your spine freely but if we spend too much time in those waters it becomes just overbaked goods right we're just we're just, we're, we're creating this, this, we're specializing in the, in the, in the preparation, you know, it's like, we're overtuning the engine before we race the car. And so we got to bring it in and test it, which is your concept you're talking about with aliveness. So that's why I would say some of that stuff is still valuable. People spend too much time there or don't give enough attention to the detail of getting it right early on. So they're not demonstrating it, but they're preaching it. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think should come over too is, um, we or you've heard of Wu Wei before, like yep. non being on action. Um, so this is the, the Taoist concept of sort of not acting in a scenario and allowing that which is natural or to sort of, to sort of is natural, it's a different concept mm-hmm. in China than it is in, in the US as far as nature, right? We're not talking about parks and rec, we're talking about the closest thing that is of the nature of itself, right? The idea, this idea of nature and how it operates and we can sometimes get in the way of it. So when you have the movement, and and you're of a very like Wu Wei. You're in that spot where people say, "Oh, that's flow state." Flow state. You know, if we look at the book Flow or whatnot, many of those components of Wu Wei were were represented there, right in that book. So we're very familiar with it. That's another approachable way to understand a tradition. There's no way that that guy wasn't exposed to those ideas. It's just not. It just is too framed up, too similarly. And we can even see this affecting parkour. Like if you look at early. Like David Bell stuff. If you look at, you can see the the representation of, of some sort of influence of Asian culture. You know, he has it's half Vietnamese. Vietnam, Vietnam is very close to China. A lot of Vietnamese uh, philosophical origin is going to follow traditional Chinese thinking, specifically Taoism, even though you do end up with uh, a lot of them um, overly mystical stuff, right? Um, that's present in that vein. We love Star Wars, Taoism. We love... Uh, um nate you know okay nate weston <laughs> we love avatar lots of of and avatar how many right. how doing... many
0: guys have weight lotus tattoos in
1: the parkour community right how many guys have white lotus tattoos i want one but not right I, I do my own thing but i, I, I will oh that's I'm freaking i've got it here if you guys have not have you seen skull chatter nate weston skull chatter? Yeah, yeah oh yeah okay um so he said early on when when i uh, through through one interaction that he was when he was doing that project he was heavily influenced by alan watts work and we all know alan watts is uh, probably in the west one of the most famous at least taoist influenced philosophers and a lot of people are listening to that right now because a lot of his work has emerged and yes some of it is very fluffy and and it doesn't seem how i apply it but just feels good stuff but there are principles in there that that he's done an okay job of bringing out of Asia in in presenting it to the the West that that we can help that can help us. So I think some of the ideas of detachment, you know, not being as concerned about a specific outcome, but allowing for the jump or the movement to present itself, the lack of emphasis on structure and the emphasis on intuition and not allowing the conscious mind to interfere or bring baggage into our training is very Taoist and traditional martial arts concept. It's just that's the Tao stuff. And I think that it's um more of a sort of universal macro heuristic than it may be an individual like moment this is what you need to do x y and z like you're saying like a jitsu or something like that it's tougher to do that with it because its nature is not to be that way right so that's tough and then when we start naming stuff we create so much structure around it so like Ming which is like um uh uh so that that once you name something then it can't it can't be eternal it has an end to it it has a life cycle and as soon as you're like oh you bring something into exile into reality then you have you could conceptualize something it happens then it's not the eternal thing mm-hmm. and then you name it and then now you've brought it into reality it has an end right so there's there's many layers of that but that so that sort of thinking about how we train in our adaptability in parkour and our and our ability to go to a different spot and reimagine it and our attachment to wu-wei and zi nature and wu-wei, uh, the love to go to a new spot and reinvent that spot and experience it new each time. These are all things that are Taoist and we found them in parkour because parkour is very close to human nature. And I think that's the real endeavor, right, at the core. And then the ziran or the concept of nature in Chinese philosophy or Taoism is, is obsessed with getting closer to that and understanding that that's really, you know, your place. Um, so that those are the things I try to carry into my teaching. And you'll hear me use those metaphors. And I spin it as like a karate kid, like wax on, wax off joke because it's deliverable. But my closest students, you know, do get the opportunity to sort of like toss ideas around. And it's not... That I'm their master teaching them. Um, it's more like, look, I've thought about that. Here are my thoughts around it in the end. And yes, this that's bullshito, because I will tell them, no, someone's making that up. And then I'll tell them, okay, I, I haven't heard that before, I have heard that before. Um, and that's you know, on the philosophy side of things, that's where I think there's good carryover, and you do see those principles brought into movement. For the example, Tai Chi. And I think what's a good example of like uh, like the funds are like the relax and the tension strides you know like you don't want us to just be completely tense through every stride you know they already had some of this, these principles like like well, yeah
0: i mean out. we can describe we can describe these things right so movement right you you're always looking at timing right timing which is you know are the body segments in the right place at the right time with the right tension to apply in a given period of time. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so an athlete can be, you know, can have their foot in the right place at the right time. But if the, if they're trying to, to, you know, concentrically contract the, 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 the calf muscle rather than isometrically hold it so that the, tendon can, can bend like a, can, you know, store energy and like a spring, right. Then they're Mm -hmm. not going to be as effective. Right. So there's, there's a, there's a level of stiffness that we need. And then there's a level of relaxation that we need. Um, And that's variable across the moments of a, of a motor sequence. Um, And it's also variable to some degree based on the athlete's proportions and structure and physiological characteristics, their neurology, their, you know, uh, fast twitch to, to slow twitch ratios, fascia, all these things. And you can, you know, you can see chi as essentially a description of movement, one way of, one thing that it may be describing is movement that, that sort of optimizes across these these parameters. And, and I can see that, that um, yeah, the, the principles you're talking about in Tai Chi and, and some of that stuff at all, it all makes sense. Right. But I don't know that it's optimal the way that it's being trained in, in those contexts.
1: Right. No, I don't think it is. I think one that is optimal is the idea of continuous motion. And this is being in a being self, because we have to have the awareness piece. Right. So there are some people who like, there's a, there's something, it's a more complicated thing. I had my teacher tell me one time was that like, if someone studies one of these more complicated Northwestern styles that are really like the Tongbei, like the ones you see that kind of like, you know, obviously had something from that. Um, You know, those are very hard. It'd be like working with a high level parkour athlete, you know, you get somebody like that and it's super, you're super lucky for them to be able to to get to that point. They can learn like the Tai Chi concepts, like in a fraction of the time that it would take someone who starts from scratch, learn Tai Chi to get to those more advanced techniques. Right. Um, It takes just somebody who's already got that within them. They learned it a different way. But I
0: wonder about that sometimes. I feel like one of the problems we have in the pedagogy of the martial arts is that they were, a lot of the martial arts, they're, they're, they're from a context in which the level of physical literacy of the student coming in is going to be so much higher. Right. So it's like, you, you might be able to get somebody like, I think shadow, let's take a Western thing, shadow boxing. Right. Shadow boxing actually really only works if you can imagine someone trying to hit you Mm -hmm. and imagine the distance that someone's going to be when you're trying to hit them and how they're going to move in reaction to the hits, uh, the strikes that you throw. So, an experienced fighter can do that an experienced fighter can can model in their mind what a combative interaction looks like and they can use that as a basically a, a scenario playing ground to hone and think about things that they've experienced okay so shadow boxing is something that traditionally is done by skilled boxers and then it's just picked up as a tradition and then everyone's like expects a novice to shadow box mm-hmm. but if you haven't had enough fights or enough sparring matches you don't get anything really out of shadow boxing, except a little bit of a fitness benefit that you would have got just as much from, from running.
1: Right. So something that's analogous to that would be, I am at, I, like I teach, you know, plyo strides, um, quad jump, things like that on flat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a benefit of them learning the timing, but it's not the same as if like somebody who has really good highline strides, like goes to essentially time their strides out on yeah. flat to do a roof dab but there's still benefit like if you don't even have the coordination to 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 do like a mislay or to even do a plyo into stride, then i mean you got to start somewhere right it's yeah, just yeah. that's my earlier point is they stay there too long you need just enough to go out and test it it's an mvp you need the mvp of movement and then the higher the risk the movement is like you might need more preparation like with tendon stuff and and experience before you make that high risk choice but yeah I mean that's already that's in your study, that's in your work too. Like yeah. I've heard it before.
0: Yeah, I mean you can. I, I mean I think you know uh, there's a lot of discussion, or you know that I have in, with people around like a schema based learning model versus an ecological learning model. And the schema is mm. like you have a motor program in your head, and you and you have a sort of um, offline control of movement, and then it it translates out into the world. And then the opposite is that basically you're always responding to the environment, and the environment is telling you the information. So you should always be focused on doing something that takes you in the environment and teaches you to do it. So like you could imagine if you have, we'll give you a classic one. So you, you put someone on the floor and you have them do a bear crawl, right. Or a quadrupedal movement.
1: You talking about like the booty boot camp one with the button here. Or are you talking about like a good, good QM?
0: Uh, it doesn't matter. Either one, really. okay. either one, what you'll find is that approximately maybe half the students in a novice parkour class will adopt an ipsilateral pattern right they'll lift one one hand and the uh, foot and hand on one side and not not cross lateral
1: okay no reciprocation it's not yeah. like an animal would move no yeah
0: so well there are animals that pace like camels but in any I event
1: know, like giraffes too maybe i don't know maybe i don't know They're already weird uh, there are horses that animals.
0: pace but that's 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 beyond the scope of it what what we know is that in, in most of our applications, not all, but in most of our applications, we're looking for more of a cross-lateral pattern. And so in most beginner parkour classes or movement classes or CrossFit classes, whatever they are where they're teaching this pattern, they're gonna be asking people to move cross-laterally. And you can use all sorts of, it, once you take a, a habitually bipedal human being who's not physically literate and you put them horizontal And then you start trialing them, which foot and hand are going to move. Most people just get really confused. It's not verbal cues. Don't work very well. You can do a little bit better with, with physical cues. You can touch the hand and foot that you want to move at the same time, but people still get really confused. But here's the thing. If you put them on a tree branch, they will just do a a cross lateral crawl because it's, it, it, it emerges as the correct solution from the environment. The environment has enough information to tell them how they should organize their body. So in the same way, if you take someone to a rocky creek bed and you have them run up and down it repeatedly, they'll eventually t- adopt most of the basic jumping patterns, right? And then you can refine it, right? You can say, okay, like you're starting to do a hurdle pattern. We're going to like do this drill to make sure you have the motor control to get your leg in the right position on that trail like position. There's a point of that where I believe that there is an isolation that's necessary. I do believe there's also, there's also places where skills are very not natural to the human body and they kind of have to be introduced before you can actually enter the game play situation. I don't think you can learn dribbling a basketball very well without just practicing the skill of dribbling the basketball you can't play mm-hmm. basketball mm-hmm. until you can dribble and shoot there and they're 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 not exactly natural skills um right like running jumping are our are, are central pattern governor skills that develop very early on in uh in in childhood they have deep innate causal roots right um based on underlying reflexes and everything so those things tend to organize very well in the sort of lower aspects of the brain and actually when we bring them up into the more, uh, more verbal, more cognitive aspects of the brain, we can actually interfere with them and make them harder uh, to reproduce and, and mess them up. Mm. Um, so, so I think that how we approach skills uh, should generally in our context, and I also think in the martial arts context, start with exploring the task and then exploring the principles that allow you to succeed in the task and then looking for techniques and refining the techniques and then introducing the sort of knowledge about the skill, right? Rather than the knowledge of what it's like to be within the skill, right? How, there's mm-hmm. how to do it. Like I, I know how to do an arm bar and then I can describe to you, well, an arm bar works because when I, when I create this lever action of the elbow over blah, blah, blah. And if I understand the lever and understand how the elbow turns and like, you know, there's a reason I want my, the, your thumb up when I do the arm bar. And that has to do with, you know, the radius and the ulna and all that, like all that can donate to the skill, but I, I could know all of those things and be shit at giving, uh, putting people in arm bars.
1: Yeah. Cause somebody just won't let you have it
0: because i don't i don't actually have the embodied knowledge i don't have this felt sense of what a body is telling me that's going to allow me to guide it into that position where i have that arm bar
1: yeah yeah so i'm saying like they like your opponent won't give it to you they won't let you have it if you're in that if you're in that position you're like okay so now all i have to do is straighten the arm out and then the guy's just going to tap out because that's what my teacher's powerpoint said or something yeah. like that then you'll find yourself in the position where you where you don't have the contextual um experience to be able to exactly. say oh my real problem is i have to find a way to to get this person if they're experienced to give me that position and or you to, to put them feel. in that position mm-hmm. you have to have feel and sense
0: Percep- and you, can't you have to link that. perception with motor action which, so which,
1: which again is a You know, it's it that's that's an that's found a lot in Eastern thought, like that natural or sort of not natural, but just sort of the culturally or philosophically accepted answer that is almost anti academic. That is, that's only that's something that needs to be experienced. You need to feel it, and getting closer to it is the priority over defining it Mm -hmm. is something that comes from that type of thinking. But don't, don't get me wrong here. I don't think that parkour athletes need to learn martial arts, and I don't, and I think it's a very odd. I'm mean, going a very odd duck or you might be, or someone else might be who has a martial arts background who teaches parkour, like to be able to bring that in, it's not for, certainly not for everyone. Um, and I wouldn't say that the first thing someone should do who's doing parkour is to go take a martial arts class only through your parkour better. I think that it's very artful to weave those together. And, but that I think that the, that there's value in the philosophies and traditions because they had to teach that stuff a very long time. Also, like you were saying before, a lot of this stuff is just, a Western interpretation of what guys got a little picture of. I mean, there's been no shortage of guys going over for two weeks to Asia at best, trying to pick up something from a teacher who's trying to sell a course, right? And then come back and build an entire system around it. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. have to test it against reality.
0: And I also think there's the reality that these lineages, like what they teach and what they think they're teaching, they may not have been that aligned and so there may be value here and not value there. I mean I've seen I've seen footage from the 1920s of of tai chi teachers fighting and they're terrible at fighting. Yes. Sorry but they are. But
1: the other thing to think about that and too is that you know a lot of the guys who are really good you can I I've, I've seen enough downstream guys to know someone up there had it figured out, right? In your lineage somebody somewhere knew something because I can tell you hit like a beast. You can Kick and break stuff. Your when you get around people, the way you the way you touch and I've and I've I've rolled with enough people, sparred with enough people to know when I touch someone whether they have whether they're you know physically intelligent. Like you know mm-hmm. it, you can feel it. It's like a power from Dragon Ball or something. You're like oh, this wins over nine thousand, right? So you're <laughs> gonna know. You'll know. Yeah. How will they know? You'll know. Like when they're good, you you'll be like ooh, there's something different about you. it's not that's not a woohoo thing that's like they feel different they they feel like they know what the heck is about that there's a confidence a physical confidence and there's a reaction and then there's a presence so i think that that's i think there's again that these are just these are adjacent things this is why martial arts kind of parkour belongs closer to martial arts than i think a lot of people are treating it which i think is what what you're saying as well you know my teacher he would and you were talking about, oh, do we how do we teach this? It's that it's the task, and then it's sort of the techniques that work best in the task or the context, and the techniques that work best in the context that that approach is very good. And the, my teacher, um, who, who I still have a strong relationship with that I, that I um, developed when I came back from China, was uh, um, his name is Daniel Piscina. He was the original um, Johnny Cage in the Mortal Kombat um, <laughs> arcade <laughs> yes. system. Yes, exactly. And, He's a, yeah, he's a, he's a wushu guy and, you know, helped uh, co- co-create the game for the first, you know, couple. And then before it became all CGI and, but he was a big, like wushu guy, strong lineage, spent time in China, really good teachers um, who came out of that era. And he would always say, okay, well, because I can give you more individual attention, I'm going to show you the form that's way, I'm just, we're just going to go straight to the black belt form or, or I don't have a black belt form. But I'm trying to give an analysis and wushu doesn't have black belts. But I'm going to take you to the form that people would have waited for. We're going to go there and we're going to work on those mechanics. In the beginning, it's going to be worse. But down the road, it's not like you learn, you don't know, understand these body mechanics and the style and the flavor and, the, and these techniques. I'm going to teach them to you earlier on, as long as you're athletically capable. You have that um, physical intelligence you were talking about. You're just going to do that. And I'm going to look for a form that matches where you're at, where your baseline's at. I'm going to give you that and teach you those body mechanics. And then we'll explore the techniques within that but it's sort of like, there's, there's something to be said about that, especially in a traditional or in parkour gyms, because a lot of times in parkour with park, not gyms, but coaching will bring someone in and they're like, I'm just going to give you everything. I'm going to give you a technique and either your injury or my, you know, what will stop you or your physical abilities will stop you. I'm going to give you, there's that type of coach. And then there's a type of coach that maybe just has no care to the technique, but it's like, this is all about the environment. We're going to move over things and your body, you know, is just going to figure it out that super traditional um, method natural, sort of like um, put you in the space, the space will teach you. So, a good coach can pull from those and what's needed and sort of draw into them. I think the risk that we run into right now at the place of parkour coaching is since there isn't that much amazing parkour coaching, parkour coaching, or any coaching, athletic coaching, really everywhere, is that we have to be able to talk about all those categories and when to use them. Because, certainly, if I have a group, if I have a class, and it's your first six months or your first time with me, it's going to be, and I have time with you, there will be benefits for me just to fill the time with you doing a lot of QM at the end of training, like that repetition is going to help. There's, you know, later on, it'll help you help you do things. I will, I personally teach, I'm very strict about how I teach where people's arms are and arm swings for precision landings, because I think that over time, I've seen enough people who just hold their arms in front of their body, you know, slip out and fall off the back of something. And I think that landing with your hands behind your back has such a major contributor to control in your landing that if it's your day one i'm gonna make you do it on the floor a bunch of times you'll go over do a jump you won't do it but eventually you'll catch on versus me waiting for you to be a pro athlete who has that preference because they've fallen enough they've so there's like um there's there's like surviving coaching and then there's like being coached right So I think a lot of people who've been around the parkour world for a long time have sort of survived that there was this selection process that allowed them to still be there. I think the opportunity for approachable parkour is, is enough wisdom to say, yeah, you know, surfaces are a problem and teaching, teaching good body mechanics to, to avoid injuries before they even happen. I think that's a big part of, of what a good coach should be doing in parkour, get some volume in, get, get those, get those patterns in, and that sort of thing is similar to martial arts in the sense that when you start a lot of martial arts, you're not going straight to, to to fighting. You're go you are starting with spending some time on your physicality. I think there's value in that in martial arts. I'd like to know. I'm curious as to what you think, what that what that amount is. When well, you return yeah. to the I source, mean, the environment. So re- sorry, real quick, I just want to point out. We do return to the source or we go on these, the, you know, do work with you when you have the shorter time frames. the environment is so rich and the opportunity to learn stuff is so great. But when you're in a gym and you've got somebody for a year, you might as well, you know, throw some stuff at them. So I'm interested in your, in your feeling about that context.
0: Yeah. So coaching helps like, or coaching can help. Let's start with that because yeah. like, I know it took me six months to learn a Kong boat. And I clip my knees like dozens of times, okay? And then fast forward and I like take my gymnastics brain and all the things that I'd learned teaching people gymnastics. And I break it down into here's the, how you do a ground Kong and here's here's your arm setup and here's your, like let's just practice the split foot position, right? And that, that became, you know, I, I, all of a sudden I was able to take like a, you know, a healthy, a young athlete and teach them to do a kong ball in one class right and it was like okay cool well this this is a lot better than six months so so that's that's kind of a schema based motor control right now you're breaking it down into pieces and we know that that can work when I took people into nature what I discovered is a lot of the cues that I expected to give or a lot of the drills that I expected to have to use they would they would figure out on their own and so they were self-organizing the principles or the skills that I was looking to teach them and that was initially very confusing for me but I started trying to think about this idea of of tricking them into doing the skill so now what I think is that there's a that you can sk- <laughs> my, my camera died
1: um, <laughs> it's all good it's back
0: my uh I think that there is insufficient attention to how we scale constraints for many people as a way to build learning. So you don't like, I think the traditional martial arts method of doing conditioning and, and basically dead skill work, right? Mm-hmm. Just practicing a punch um, against the air to look at its body mechanics and structure um, is a very backwards and slow way to actually achieve the result that we're looking for. And I actually think that the thing that we talked about earlier, which is that the best parkour athletes don't come from classes. I think that's one of the best evidences for this part of it. I think, I think the American wrestling tradition is actually one of the best pedagogical traditions to learn from because I think that they discovered how to use constraints maybe better than anybody else. And I think actually within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the best Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu actually has a lot of American wrestling in it. comes from holes gracie who taught it to hickson who Mm -hmm. taught it to his students
1: um yeah but those guys still went to school they still had coaches you know what i mean i mean yeah i'm not
0: saying that they're not coaching but but the principle is the same the principle is that you're using the constraints to control the thing so what parkour what parkour does which is amazing is that parkour uh, essentially athletes get to self-select and self-organize constraints that are sufficiently uh, that are that allow them to be in their kind of zone of optimal challenge and then figure out movement solutions to it. Same thing actually in rock climbing, like rock climbing, uh, problem solving. The problem with parkour, where a lot of people burn out of parkour, is they don't get to the point where they have enough awareness to set up their own constraints. And so they just like, they do one jump and that's satisfying, but then they can never find the jump that's in between, Right. Yeah. They can't, they can't scale the ladder, right? Like, so, so, so you there's, how do you scale the ladder? So if you have a, an athlete who can jump 10 feet, right. And then the next jump that they can see is 11 feet. One way to, 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 to get them up that ladder is to just make them way stronger and more explosive so they can mm-hmm. jump that. The other way is to find a 10 foot, two inch jump and have them practice that.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right. So so what are the, what so your levers are like the technical understanding, the the constraints and, and the physicality. What I believe we should actually do is base m- the training in the constraints, because it's there that we're actually going to harvest all of the adapt adaptations that we're looking for. And where that's not giving us what we need, that's when we go to a more technical model. So mm-hmm. if something like you gave the example of the arm swing. So the arm swing, um, so in, in motor learning theory, we talk about, uh, the, or they talk about fluctuators and attractors, okay? So an attractor is something that has to be the same, basically every time. And then a fluctuator is something that is variable. Hmm. So if you're looking at somebody doing a baseball, uh, swinging a baseball bat, there's a, basically there's a point their wrists need to be at in the center of the, the strike zone at the right moment. And that's gonna be very consistent, right? Where you look at the follow through, like how the, how the ball leaves the hand in a basketball shot. So that's a, that's an attractor. But then it turns out that a lot of motor performance is these things that are basically buffers that help you get to that attractor. So when you jump in the air, one of the things that I don't like about MoveNet is I think they over-prescribe and prescribe, they, they tell people to focus on controlling fluctuators in a specific direction and that actually destabilizes the tractor performance so one of the things that they spend a lot of time talking about is where your knee recovery is in a jump okay so but that's actually variable to what your trajectory is on your takeoff and your trajectory is going to be slightly different every time because there's always variations in performance so one of the ways you correct your trajectory into your landing is how much you pull your knees up in the air. So by telling somebody that the knees should be pulled to a very specific point in the air on every jump, they're actually taking away that athlete's ability to calibrate where they are in the air such that they land effectively. And they're getting the athlete thinking more than they need to, right? Rather than giving them an attentional focus that's gonna allow them to self-organize the correct thing. So now I think that the arm swing is basically a fluctuator, but there's an aspect of it, like the, this arm swinging down and back is going to happen every time, but the the amount of back is going to change. And there's actually also the variation of the arm swinging straight back versus circling Beneath. and how much they Beneath. flap out. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things are things that you, um, you want to give the athlete Enough freedom to self organizing different variants that work for them and work for different contexts. Now, when you're working with novice athletes, a lot of them are going to just stick their arms out in front and have them kind of stuck. And Nikolai Bernstein talks about this. He calls this freezing degrees of freedom in a movement problem. Now, once an athlete develops, theoretically, um, according to some models, they're going to open up their degrees of freedom and you're going to see that come about. So, I would default towards not coaching that um, unless I saw that an athlete was progressed past the point at which they should have started self-organizing the the ability to allow an arm swing. So one of my students, Scott, had, had been doing parkour for like three years. And he still always landed with his arms in front. And I was like, then we went back and said, okay, let's build this and, and take a look at like relaxing those arms and letting them fall behind you and then letting them come up to help stabilize your landing. But, um, I would be worried that over coaching that is going to take the athlete's attention away from more important things to pay attention to and potentially get getting rid of positive variation that they're going to need in order to stabilize performance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that we, we might have to look at the, uh, first of all, I never say, ne- I never say this is the, always the thing that I'm doing for, for blanket on coaching on things mm-hmm. in my experience in the setting that I've been working on with, with my typical student base, the risk of slipping on a precision, and sort of the having to go back so some of this is stuff like I I definitely would describe the difference between the straight arm swing and then sort of the backstroke style swing Mm -hmm. but when I go on to teach things like um plyos and then it's like I have to go back to the drawing board too much that's one that I tend to stick to that's just one I mean there are other ones like maybe some techniques in in uh uh, like strides or some brachiation stuff. That I would just leave it alone. I'd like to get from here to there. right but the, the arm swing one I really like because it's just such a tough movement pattern that if I let them go for so long and they haven't, then I have to go back and, as a novice athlete, athlete and teach them that. However, I will say there's a sliding scale on that between um, adults and youth. Um, with my adult students, it's way, it's like, it's flipped. It's like 80%, you're going to do more repetition. I'm going to keep you I'm going to talk to you about technique more and about 20% of what you do is going to be more explorative just because i found that at least in my environment, in my setting, the way I have stuff set up, it's, 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 there's more risk aversion there for injury. And in my setting, I'm generally more concerned about that. Someone's just signed up for, you know, six months, a year, or has paid me for private lessons or something. I want to make sure that they're healthy above anything else pretty much. Um, and then just because I think that's the environment they signed up for when they came in and talked to me with kids. They tend to not even have the patience for that. So it's like 80% environment, 20% I'm going to cue you. So mm-hmm. like, what happens is I ended with more powerful youth students coming in and meeting in our higher level programs with adults who are technically cleaner, but like, don't have the same gusto and sort of almost, um, they're cleaner. So the risk for injury I think is less, but they're, um, they're not as like you know, wild or contextually experienced. Like you're saying They they can, the younger kids can just take more take more blows when it comes to like mistakes. Right. So when I've got somebody as a mom in, I'm just like, okay, my priority, number one, don't break your tailbone. Right. You know, something like that. Right. So that's how I, that's how I handle that. But I agree with you. I don't want this. I don't want this like rigid, like your knees are always here. Well, except for when they're here. And then every other time, okay, well, actually your knees aren't really there that often, but I'm going to let you believe that this is making you better without, without, you know, applying, (laughs) applying that in in real context. Right. So, yeah. So
0: here's a question for you. Um, Could you manipulate your constraints in a way that would get somebody to organize their arm swing earlier, rather than, rather than drilling it or cueing it?
1: Uh, That's a, that's, that would, that's a very good question. Um, I'm trying to think of how I'm, so typically what I'm going to do is I will teach it as a standing hop. And then what they're doing is they're trying to work on feeling lighter as they jump. So if they just stand and they jump and they let their arms be dead at the side, I'll let them do that, and I'll let them discover what it feels like to get their arms to contribute to being lighter. That's typically how I introduce the mechanic. Hmm. Um, and then if they're jumping forwards, um, typically I will be I will ask them if they hold their hands in front of them and try and jump, you know, to in in, in plyos, they'll feel a difference between. Allowing themselves the time to reset in between motions and let their body more naturally swing and in, swing into the jumps. So that's not, I mean, you're talking about a literal context in which where would be where would be a scenario where the environment would force me to sort of flutter at my hips with my hands in order to get that feeling of, of using the arms to contribute to the to the vertical jump. Um, yeah, I'm open to your ideas on that.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think in my context because I'm, I don't, I don't feel like I run into athletes not figuring it out very often, right? Mm. It's like, um, the the problem doesn't seem to occur, right? So I don't have a, I don't have a ready-made solution. It seems to be something that's emergent in the environment that I teach in.
1: So the way that it presents to me is instability and like precisions or um, slipping, um, specifically or overshooting jumps. And the other way that it presents to me is the inability to link plyos in jumps. And I think that those are, that's a major contributing factor to preparedness for the plyo. And so that's how, that's symptomatically how the movement of, dare I call it, pathology presents <laughs> to me is in yeah, that no. manner.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking, I may mean, not. Uh, um, I mean, maybe, maybe some athletes are struggling with it and I'm not noticing it, but, uh, but I'm just wondering, like what what's going on with that because so all I, don't, I, I don't identify it as a problem in the students that i'm working with
1: well all i did was I I mean, went i've fast. seen
0: it but it's not a common problem it yeah. is my my felt my 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 current understanding of it
1: i think there's many people that would probably agree with you because i have had this conversation before and there are scenarios where you don't even use it like transitioning up on like from like a monkey plant or a kong up like mm-hmm. you don't you don't need that um it's something that i think pays dividends that can that people can focus on that that gives them a um a a finesse and a task that allows their movement patterns to be cleaner more efficient that doesn't involve a just making their jump bigger in parkour and I think that's something that I think is very important too is that there should be elements of finesse that you can focus on I'm a big style guy like I would say that I'm just as much style as I am practicality when it comes yeah. to my movement so I, do care about that aspect as well. And I think it contributes well to, to, to finesse.
0: So I mean, the arm swing is, arm swing timing is very important and invaluable. Yes. Like one thing that I've been working on recently is a gather step front flip versus a Webster. So yep. the I, I want to use an under throw so my arms go behind and come forward on my on my takeoff. Um, there's a subtle difference between the timing that you use on the arm swing um, for a Webster takeoff where your back leg is kicking up or a Kong ball where you're reaching forward and grabbing something or a gather step where you need to be able to utilize the power of that those arms being down because basically when the arms swing down they increase the ground reaction force of the legs against the ground. That's and you, you get this elastic, this elastic response from the arms. Okay. So that helps you power up through the extension. But the problem is that if you keep extending, then you can't tuck, right? So you have a sloppy tuck. Yep. So the timing has to be modified generally in order to make the gather step work. Um, and so essentially what I've noticed, or what it seems to be happening for me, though I don't know how consistent this is is that I'm shortening the lever of my arms at a certain point, I'm, I'm bending my elbows in order to essentially shoot my hands upwards rather than sort of swing them in a longer arc at, at a certain point in the gather step. And this is actually something that I was cued to do by Johan LaRue seven years ago, um, uh, but I, I, I never quite could get it. I didn't get the feel for it, but he said, Swing your arms down and then punch up like Superman to do a um, to do a front flip, but but this is the type of thing that 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 timing is is critical and timing your arm swings on strides and timing your arm swings on plyos is critical. But the question is, is that something that 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 you want the athlete to be paying attention to, versus giving them another attentional cue that will get them to organize their arms in that way?
1: Yeah. I think that's the wisdom of coaching. Like if you're a super solid, like coaching is so much of coaching is knowing the, the time. It's like a joke. It's the timing of a cue. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you hit them just right. And they're like, Oh, uh, I always say like, like the Zen koans are like spiritual humor. You're not laughing. It's, but it's enlightenment. Like there's this level of awareness. Like, ah, so like somebody who's a good spiritual comedian may not be funny but he can like you know crack enlightenment in like a second right that's that that would be enlightenment (laughs) so there's that that aha moment feeling i think coaches with cues can do that can do that too and i i don't have a ton but i do know that when um i teach people this way uh the my injury rates are very 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 low and I know that we sort of have, the way we do our programming is is that adults and sort of teens converge in the higher levels of classes, which would be basically a level three class-ish type thing. And, but they take different journeys there. One's more concerned about exploration and body awareness and dealing with risk. and, And the other one's more concerned about generally safety and sustainable training as you get into adults, right? I put an emphasis on that. But when they meet, like they work really well together. And I think that that's because They've done they've done some more drilling like this if I had like a like a quip or a cute cue that I could I think it's more desirable because I think that we generally agree I think both of us agree that learning contextually is superior to me giving you five different drills to work on and you having to orchestrate that into application in some other less in some of our more relevant context, right? I'm taking yeah. from a less relevant context. I'm fragmenting movement, essentially teaching you five different movements and what you're gonna be doing in the hope that that makes you better at applying this when the time comes. Uh, it's also why a lot of people do band challenges at gyms where they have like, you do individual skills or you sign off on like, not skills, but like like push ups and pull ups, things that are less relevant to parkour. Whereas ours is we, we teach and work with you to get to the point where you just, you complete the course. And there isn't rigidity around oh you know you used your knees there whatever the goal is you're you're already doing that by habit and if you do it in the course you're it's because you just had to or you just were nervous or something like that it's we're not gonna ding you it's like you did it you started it you stopped it good to go and the quality of how you did it and how it looks well that was our fault earlier on in classes right that's how we handle our challenges too because it's just not it's less authentic to, to see people do like that. This is something that Ninja does, right? Where they have like, you see people that go to one station, they chalk up and then they get ready. And then they're like, okay, now I'm going to do this task. And then they get done and they do a lap and people clap and they breathe and they look like dramatic, like they're on TV. And they do the next one versus in parkour, they show up. And it's like you un, you took a, dom, like a domesticated cat and then you released him as like this sort of like outdoor terror, right? <laughs> Who can move through everything. Like that's what you want. Uh, To have, So that's the end in mind. And so I love those cues. If there was a channel that just said, look, here's five things you're using to teach this wrong, I'm gonna give you one cue and and the person's gonna get it, I'd subscribe. I'd freaking pay for that tomorrow. I feel like I have a lot of that, but I'm just saying like, I'm always open to those ideas for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, actually, Nick Winkleman and I have talked about that, uh, about basically creating a cue library um, for parkour Mm -hmm. and different sports and, you know, how we can organize this information better. Um, yeah, that'd be fun if I could spend some attention to that. So, um, we've been going a little bit longer than I expected. I have other, other things that need to get done today. Um, uh, Travis is super fun to uh, to have this chat with you and I'm sure we'll, we'll chat more in the future and hope you can come out and visit us again soon.
1: Absolutely. We got the gym built. I'm going to, I got a new baby coming on the 13th, 16th, I think is scheduled date. Um so that's gonna get me busy, but I'm I'm ready to get back to the northwest, man. Like I like I love it out there. So yeah, you will see me.
0: Sounds good, man. Have a good day.
1: Awesome. Oh, Thanks.
0: Before I go, um outrunparkour.com. Uh, yeah.
1: So you can follow me, Travis Grantley, um, on Instagram um and uh or even i think i'm outrunner on tiktok right now and the outrunparkour.com i think that the best thing for people who aren't local is to connect with us Uh, myself uh travis lee and my partners jesse and justin clark on and our coaches on instagram and uh other social in order to see what we're up to and then if you're in the area we're gonna be planning some events and i think probably some comps and stops that are coming up in the future they're gonna be really cool um, but uh yeah, if you come out this way, make sure you hit us up before you uh before you show up. And yeah, cool. we love uh love having visitors. So
0: yeah, I would also say you guys have been putting a lot of content on YouTube as well that people might be interested in looking at. That's
1: right. i uh, sorry, I totally forgot to mention the outrun show. So we do a podcast as well. Um uh outrun show, and that can be found from the website, run spotify. Uh, YouTube and uh, apple's podcasts and so if you're interested in what three gym owners um, with a lot to say about jokes and parkour um, we are a very wholesome palate cleanser too so <laughs> it's safe to listen to around your your kids and stuff so I think we may be one of the few ones like that other than other than your uh, <laughs> your your pod, your show as well
0: awesome great thank you so much Travis talk to you soon yep Thanks again. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.